Like people joke, right? Like, are you going to be 5% exposed or 100% exposed? Like, I'm 500% exposed. 5%? 50%? Not, you know, we started with $250 million of capital. We bought $3.5 billion of Bitcoin. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app. And you know what? They crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S, bet.io good to see you again michael thanks for having me well thanks for having me we're yeah your place here and uh, i guess i am yeah the host uh so last time we did an interview was about a year ago it's just over a year ago we did october last year we did two covered a lot of stuff a lot of stuff's happened since so i want to cover a lot of that with you but i'm quite interested to find out just from your perspective what it's been like for you this last 12 months because it's been a lot of changes for you personally. It's been an educational 12 months. Uh, I, I think that um, the first stage of, um, of my interaction with Bitcoin was, was it was defensive. Like I was, I was investing in Bitcoin to defend uh, my treasury. And so first we had a problem and the focus on the problem was the focus upon the currency war and the, and the debasement of currency and the fact that treasury strategies weren't working. So, so uh, with that kind of stress, we found Bitcoin. I think um, the next stage was opportunistic. 
you know, it's like the stock was $120 a share and we thought, well, if we buy back the stock at $140 a share, we'll be able to buy some Bitcoin, right? So that mm -hmm. was the defensive, very careful, uh, careful uh, rotation of our shareholder base. The second stage, you know, which, which started about this time last year, opportunistic, our stock doubled. And then we realized, well, we can actually go and raise money and buy, and we could raise money. And then we thought, well, we're gonna raise money. Maybe we could buy some Bitcoin with the money we're gonna raise. What better use of proceeds is there? And I think the first uh, convertible debt offering, right? We came to the market, we wanted to raise $400 million and we got oversubscribed and we raised $650 million. And that deal was like December. So we're at the end of November right now, right? So mm -hmm. about a year ago in December, we raised $650 million at 75 basis points and we bought Bitcoin with it. So that was opportunistic. And I think, the th I think at that point, people still weren't sure what to think. I mean, the first they thought we were taking an obscene risk and then they thought, you know, they weren't sure what to think. But by February, that deal we'd done in December was the best performing bond issue of the year in the world for anybody, mm -hmm. right? So our stock had, uh, you know, our stock had gone up by a factor of 10 almost, you know, and that bond tripled. And by February, we thought, well, this is more than opportunistic. And this, is, this isn't defensive anymore. It's not opportunistic anymore. We ought to, this is a strategy. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, this is strategic. And so if you look at our filings, when we filed our 10K, which is the first quarter, you know, a company that's public has to state what's your business strategy, mm -hmm. right? And our, and our business was selling enterprise software at uh, the beginning of 2020 with a bunch of money on the treasury. And by the beginning of 2021, our business was a micro strategy, let's sell enterprise software and a macro strategy, uh, we're gonna acquire and hold Bitcoin. And we're gonna do that with equity or debt or any other kind of rational financing. So I would say we went through these three stages. And, and of course, as you find us today, it's strategic, right? Our, our strategy is acquire and hold Bitcoin. The, the core microstrategy business is growing uh, better. Like we were not growing when we started this endeavor and now we're growing five to 10% a year. So I feel like it, it revitalized and fused a lot of vitality and a lot of energy into the core business. It certainly infused a lot of vitality into the brand. The MicroStrategy brand is much better known. The MicroStrategy you know, company is much better known. So it's good for, the, good for the employees, good for the shareholders, good for the customers. If you sell enterprise software, then you're selling to CFOs and CEOs and CIOs and, and, and our competitor is Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, mm -hmm. IBM, all much bigger, all much better known. And so your number one challenge is you walk in, into the place and knock on the door and they say, well, who are you? So a year ago, nobody really knew who MicroStrategy was, but today- They know now. A lot of people know who we are, in fact, you know, like the the CEO of Microsoft might go on CNBC and talk about Microsoft and get 15,000 views on Twitter. And I would go on CNBC and get 400,000 views on, you know. So it's kind of a, a very interesting thing. We leapfrog from being, you know, the hundredth smallest or hundredth largest enterprise software company 
to all of a sudden being more well-known than all the software companies we competed against. So I thought it was a really good year for MicroStrategy. I thought it was a really good year for Bitcoin. If we mm -hmm. look at Bitcoin, I would say the same is true. If you look at uh, Black Thursday, right, people back in March, people were afraid, is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? Is it a safe haven or is it a risk asset? And what's gonna happen? And I would say by June, July, August of last year, it was like a defensive strategy. I have some money, I gotta do something with it and maybe I'll do this Bitcoin thing with it. And then I would say by the fourth quarter, it started being opportunistic, right? When Square announced they bought Bitcoin, when PayPal started moving Bitcoin, when people, st when people saw institutional adoption, they thought, well, you know, maybe it's not just, um, what, do you, what would you call it? Like it's not just an idealistic strategy for a small segment of true believers. Maybe this is also a tech investment. Maybe this is, maybe this is a risk you know, a, a risk or big tech type idea with some momentum behind it. And I would say that starting when we hit Elon Musk day, like the, I think Tuesday in February, whenever they announced, we crossed the chasm to the mainstream adoption. And I, I think that uh, the first year of mainstream adoption, you kind of look at it from March of 2020 to February of 2021. And the second year of mainstream adoption starts in February of 2021. And we just have this litany of positive shoes dropping. You know, the, the election of Biden was good for Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the, the new administration and all the regulators, including Gensler and the entire crew, uh, even Janet Yellen uh, and even Jerome Powell, good for Bitcoin. Right, and then uh, Cynthia Lummis arriving in the Senate, good for Bitcoin. Turns out six other senators, good for Bitcoin. Then it turns out a congressional caucus, good for Bitcoin. Then all, this parade of activities, the approval of the ETF, the parade of public offerings of Bitcoin miners. Mm -hmm. You know, by my count, there'll be 16, at least I can count off the top of my head, 16 public companies that are Bitcoin miners by the end of this year. And I'm guessing if I can count 16, there must be 20 or more. In August of last year, before we announced, I don't think you could find a single public company that held $5 million of Bitcoin on their balance sheet in August of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, we'll end the year and every Bitcoin miner by definition is holding some amount of Bitcoin. Many of them like Marathon buying Bitcoin in the open market and I would say, you know, if you look at MicroStrategy's journey from discovery to defensive to opportunistic to strategic, I feel like Bitcoin had the same journey of it was discovering itself and then it was an opportunity and now it's becoming a strategy. And, uh, and the things that we did, Okay, we did a $650 million convertible offering and then we did the billion dollar convert offering, but Marathon did a $650 million convertible debt offering at 1% interest a week ago. Mm -hmm. Riot just sold $600 million of equity between October, October 1st and November 15th. Okay, so you're starting to see flows of capital 
into Bitcoin and you're starting to see a whole array, a cohort of publicly traded companies entering the space and they are building a bridge between traditional investors and, and institutional investors and the 20th century economy and the crypto ecosystem of the 21st century economy and, and Bitcoin. So I, I would say all in all, good year. But what, what has it been like for you personally? Because I remember when we spoke previously, you, you had to you know, talk about the idea to your board and explain to your company what you were doing. I'm imagining some people thought, what are you up to? And you know, you've been vindicated, but also your roles, you know, the things you do now, you're spending a lot of time promoting Bitcoin, doing interviews like this on TV. How's your year personally been? Because your roles change a lot. I would say it went from scary to frenetic to fun, <laughs> right? It's, because you you've know, been March, March of last year is scary. And then it's, you know, like, if you have to agree to buy back $250 million of stock in order to buy $250 million of Bitcoin, that's a pretty expensive insurance policy. Uh -huh. Like I'm gonna buy out all of my shareholders or all of my minority shareholders so that I can pursue this strategy. So that was challenging. Right, uh, and we didn't know what would happen. Right, just nobody would know because no company had ever done it before. Yep. So, so uncertain. Uh, then stuff started moving at a fast pace, and still, you know, lots of uncertainty between September, between September and well, I mean, if you go from September all the way through this September, what do you have? Right, you have, yeah, you have the. Um, the entry of Square and PayPal, which is interesting, you have, you know, Thanksgiving last year, which was a roller coaster. You have the end of the year run up, right? Bitcoin's 25,000 on Christmas day, and then it's 30,000 by New Year's day. And mm -hmm. right, so you've got that. And then you've got Tesla's entry into the market. And then you've got the China crackdown and Tesla's rollover and then, you know, the, the energy, crisis stuff and you know and the and bitcoin trades from what 65,000 down to 30 down to 29,000 64 to 29 29 yeah. you know and then you, you know that was pleasant did you feel any pressure at that point <laughs> just the external pressure i mean yeah. you know you have all the all the external people that are you know gloating you know thinking bitcoin's going to zero but I, you know, we were constructed, I mean, people, I, I've lived through worse, right? I, I've lived through a 99% drawdown in my stock. Okay. Okay. Like, so people, they, they're like, oh, you don't know what it's like in a, in a bear market. I do yeah. know what it's like to be in a bear market. <laughs> if you lived through a 99% drawdown and stayed in business, then you felt this pressure. This is nothing compared to that, right? So this is... Um, our, our capital structure is such that we're mostly equity and then the 1.7 billion of convertible debt was unsecured. So th there's no margin loans, there's no mark to market, there's no collateral coverage. So it was, it was primarily just Twitter trolling volatility. You know, like there's always somebody on Twitter that wants to make fun of me for having, you know, Bitcoin's 30,000 I bought it at 36,000 and they want to make fun of me for buying it at the top. And I'm like, like they're making fun of me today for buying it at the top. So it's like, shit, there's always buying it at the top. It's like, 
well, I'm going to be buying at the top forever because <laughs> it could keep going up. Going right? up forever. You know, I remember when, when Bitcoin hit the all-time high at 19,000 and I went and raised a billion dollars to buy Bitcoin at the all-time high of 19,000, mm -hmm. right? And that makes you $2 billion in less than 12 months if you buy at the all-time high with 0% money. So yeah, I bought the top. So, so I think, I think it's, uh, it's kind of a little bit uh, colorful on Twitter, but um, it's useful to have lived the life. <laughs> but you, like, I'm seems... not 26, right? I'm 56, so yeah. I've, I've lived through stuff. Right, this is not the first chapter of my life. I've seen a lot of stuff. But this is like a whole new chapter for you, right? That is true. And it is definitely a new chapter and it is new twists and new turns. And Is it like a whole new like lease of like a whole new thing just to bury yourself into? Because one of the things I was going to ask you about is there's a lot of times where you're doing interviews and I'm seeing some of your ideas and sometimes you're approaching things that in a way people haven't thought about before. And I'm just kind of wondering, do you spend a lot of time just like deep in the weeds thinking about this strategizing? I think a lot, yeah, yeah, uh, but I I also just think I have the benefit of having 30 years in the software business, right? And I've launched a dozen different businesses, more than a dozen different mm -hmm. businesses, maybe two dozen. So, so I've gone through innumerable product cycles, dozens of product cycles. I've gone through all sorts of, um, all sorts of different uh, business situations. So I have a lot to draw on. And then also I'm an, I'm an engineer, but my engineering background is aerospace engineering. So, so if you were to say to me, Mike, what's the best engineering discipline? I would say you wanna be an aerospace engineer because they're truly systems engineers. If you wanna make an airplane fly, you have to master all the disciplines of mechanical engineering and you have to master all sorts of physics and you have to know, yeah, elements of civil engineering and elements of ocean engineering and elements of avionics and electrical engineering. There's computer science. Mm -hmm. You know, every every discipline of engineering pops up if you want to make something fly through the air. So in systems engineering, you learn all about uh, controls, adaptive control systems. Like every airplane is is designed to be stable, which means that if the if the plane tips, right lift builds up on the wing that's, uh, that's lower and lift falls on the wing that's higher. And so the airplane comes back to stable. That's a first order feedback loop, right? That's a servo, well, in, in Bitcoin, that's a difficulty adjustment. Okay. Okay, so people in Bitcoin are like, oh, the difficulty adjustment, this is the best thing ever, this is genius. Well, not, not really. I mean, Satoshi was a systems engineer. You can look, if you read Satoshi's papers and you think about how Bitcoin was engineered, it, it was built by someone that knew engineering very well because it's an adaptive control system and they had a, they had a target and they had a first order feedback loop and the difficulty adjustment is just a first order feedback mechanism. And, and how long have those been in existence? Every machine ever constructed properly, like every mechanism had a first order feedback loop in it. Early steam engines, the automobiles, thermostats, all the control systems, ballistic missile systems, you know, every electrical engineering system. So um, I think uh, I'm lucky enough just to be able to draw upon basic systems engineering background and yeah, a decent practical education 
you know, at MIT, you learn thermodynamics, you learn fluid dynamics. If I was to describe the motion of water in a, in a swimming pool, if you drop a rock in it, you can't describe that with arithmetic. Mm -hmm. If I want to describe the motion of air around a, around a body like this or around any fuselage, you can't describe it with arithmetic, which means, which means you can't describe an economy with one number called velocity of money and another number called inflation. And it is obvious on inspection in the first 100 milliseconds that you cannot describe a bathtub with inflation, you can't describe an airfoil with inflation, you can't design a ship or a plane or a car, you can't model an engine, you can't describe the way that heat builds up you know, on a Bitcoin mining rig with arithmetic. Mm -hmm. Nobody does, you can't build, you know, you can't build an HVAC system. You can't even cool a house. The mo, you know, a most basic workman building a house and wiring your bathroom with heating and cooling wouldn't use arithmetic, right? They, uh, and they would know that you need to think more sophisticated. And the math that you would use in, uh, in describing fluid dynamics or aerodynamics or thermodynamics is uh, uh, vector calculus or cal vector calculus of, 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 um, of uh, differential equations and the like, right? Calculus of variations. And, you know, you're a freshman 18 year old in a decent school and they're like, dolt, no, you can't so solve the problem with arithmetic. Like, what is the significance of Isaac Newton? Well, Isaac Newton gave us engineering grade math. Right? Uh, before Isaac Newton, we didn't have calculus, calculus of variations. Why does that matter? If you build a bridge and you don't want the bridge to collapse, it matters. If you build an airplane, you don't want it to fly out, fall out of the sky, it matters. And, and you know, if you want to build an electric motor or, or, or an internal combustion engine, it matters, right? So, so Isaac Newton gave us this, this more sophisticated math you know, and Andrew Carnegie gave us steel. What is that? It's an engineering grade metal. Doesn't matter if you want to build a skyscraper a hundred stories high, it matters. What does Satoshi give us? Engineering grade money, right? Engin engineering grade property. Okay, well, what's the significance? It's just properly engineered with arithmetic? No, like not with arithmetic. Right, all, all these things that we think of as, as, as modern innovations, airplanes, cars, railroads, you know, radio, it just had advanced engineering metal materials in it or advanced engineering math in it. And so if you have that background, if you're an engineer, uh, that's helpful. If you have a background in history of science, that's helpful, and, and so one of my degrees at MIT, Peter, was uh, aeronautical engineering and spaceship design. Uh, but the other degree was history of science. Okay. So starting at age 18, I was studying, okay, radiation, like history of can cancer cures, history, what happens when you introduce a railroad into a culture, what happens to the horse and buggy, you know, when the railroad comes along? Impact of steel, impact of manufacturing, impact of oil, impact of Maxwell's equations. And so I, I think it's, that's useful. And I was always very fascinated by that. And that, I wrote the book, The Mobile Wave in 2012, which is really a history of science, but applied to 
where I look back a few thousand years and we look at all sorts of interesting things like why, why did uh, the English language and the Roman alphabet um, rise to dominance over the Chinese alphabet and pictographic languages? And how, why did the, did the United States take control of the computer uh, science era versus the Chinese and the Japanese? Why, why, did, why did we dominate digital and why were they dominant in analog? And those are all things on my mind. Mm -hmm. Right? What's the impact of software when it goes from a solid state to a liquid state to a vapor state? So think, thinking about that, I mean, what, what's solid state software? Yeah, you're like, yeah. I, see, I see you're asking, what is that? Yeah. That's when you run your software on a mainframe in the back office. That was like the first generation. What's liquid state software? That's when you can put it on a laptop, that laptop and carry it around with you. You brought it to your meeting. Right. What's vapor state? Vapor wow. state is when it's running on your watch or on your phone and it's in your pocket. What's the difference? Well, you're sleeping with the phone. You're not sleeping with the mainframe. Therefore, a piece of software can ring you and wake you up in the morning when you're sleeping with it, but mainframe software couldn't. Therefore, when software went to vapor state, you morphed into, into things that were magical, like communications techniques, now you can have, um, you know, you can have a, a camera on your phone, you can, or a camera in your pocket that's software camera, and you can have magic maps in your hand, and your phone can talk to you, and you can talk to other people, and right, the world changes when you start thinking about that. So, what happens when you start thinking about the digital transformation of things that weren't? digitally transformed during the first mobile wave, right? The, the mobile wave was digital transformation of photos and music and uh, relationships and communications and maps and books, and movies and, uh, and storefronts, right? And, and so that gives you Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook. Mm -hmm. If you figure that out in the year 2010, conclusion is buy Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, why? Because of the digital transformation of the 20th century, you know, 20th century photos and entertainment and storefronts and communications. And they're just gonna be better and they're gonna move at the speed of light and you're gonna be able to ship a product to a billion people on the weekend for a nickel. And if Apple can ship a product, a better camera to a billion people on the weekend for a nickel, Apple's probably gonna make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if Google can upgrade maps so that they're magical, so the map talks to you and tells you how to drive your car and tells you don't go to that restaurant, Google's probably gonna make a lot of money. And what you conclude is digital maps are worth a lot more than analog maps. Ram McNally was never worth more than 50, 100 million dollars. Look, I got a library of books here, you know, like, what happens if I snap my fingers and I dematerialize the entire library and I print a billion copies of it and I send it to everywhere on earth and the library speaks to you and what, a, what are the prospects for the company that owns that library? They're good, really good. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking at, with the mobile wave that if you can digitally transform all that stuff, you're gonna create trillion dollar companies. So that's what I did. So you find me in 2020, and I bought Facebook stock, I bought Apple stock, I bought Amazon stock, I bought Google stock, right? I rode that wave. What's the trick? 
you buy the dominant digital network while everybody tells you you're stupid, you hold it and you wait. And then now how many people are gonna tell you you're stupid that Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple will never work? Nobody, right? Yeah, of course. 18 year old, six year olds are gonna tell you that obviously Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple work. But if you went back to 2010, you know what people would have said? The smartest hedge fund guys on Wall Street, they would have said, uh, you know, if Apple stock doubles, we're gonna sell your Apple stock and diversify your portfolio because we're gonna do good risk management because it's too risky to hold Apple if it doubles. So what are you gonna do? We're gonna buy other computer companies. They used to say that to me and I said, well, you know, guys, the problem with your, your strategy is that if Apple is able to dematerialize all these other computers, then Apple's gonna eat every other computer company and you won't need any of the other companies. And so you're gonna be selling the winner to buy the losers. And every time you diversify, you're basically converting the winner into the loser. We got to a point, Peter, where Apple made 150% of all the profit in the mobile phone business, which means that collectively every competitor lost half as much as Apple made so that they could compete against them. And so you see the fallacy of selling, you know, of diversification. And the same, is, the same has happened in uh, retail. Amazon won, Walmart kind of kept up, and the next 2,500 retailers lost. Mm -hmm. And if you had sold Amazon to buy, to diversify, right, the world's richest man is, you know, or Jeff Bezos is rich because he didn't sell. So we saw that play out. And now let's talk about Bitcoin, right? What is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is digital transformation of gold, maybe. Maybe Bitcoin is digital transformation of property. More interesting. Bitcoin is digital transformation of money, very politically charged, ideologically charged term. People mm -hmm. fight over what money is. And Bitcoin is digital transformation of energy. No one's got their head around that yet. But all these things, are things that Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook did not figure out how to digitally transform. And they're so profound that people staring at them, right? The, the traditional Wall Streeters are like the Kodaks staring at digital photos and they still haven't quite got their head around the implications, right? And ultimately you wanna make a lot of money on digital photos, you'll probably do it via Facebook or Instagram more likely even mm -hmm. than you'll do it by creating a digital camera. So I, I just think we're the, the next decade, it's just the continuation of the digital transformation of, um, of everything in the 20th century. Mark Andreessen had this phrase, you know, software is eating the world. Right, smart, mm -hmm. smart people have said, Bitcoin is just software eating money. But I think that, I think the problem with the phrase software is eating money is it makes it so politically, ideologically charged and controversial or confrontational that people's brain kind of cuts off and they, and they either decide they're against or they're for, mm -hmm. and you don't really get any further. So I, I think it's a lot more constructive to think of it in, in terms of digital transformation of property or digital transformation of energy because those are less politically charged terms. They're not so ideological, they're more technical. It's just a technology. And it's, you're fighting different battles. Yeah, it's very different.
yeah. different path. It's like, like uh, Peter, you have $100,000, you wanna save it for the rest of your life. What are your choices? I can buy $100,000 worth of gold. Mm -hmm. Gold's been going up 0% a year for the past 10 years. It doesn't seem to be, and, and can I rent my gold? No, nope. can't rent my gold. Can I mortgage? Can I put a mortgage on gold? Uh, not easy to get a mortgage on gold. The United States government's not loaning you money against gold. But can I put a lien on gold? What, what does that even mean? <laughs> Why would you ever put a lien on gold? You know, can I, you know, can I build an application with gold? Yeah, you can build jewelry with it, but by the time you build jewelry and sell the jewelry, you'll probably make less money than if you just held the gold because mm -hmm. there's so much expense to fabricating the jewelry and marketing the jewelry and distributing the jewelry. So gold is a tricky thing. 100,000 of gold, I'm not sure of. So better idea, I buy a second vacation, a, a rental property, $100,000 condo, and then I Airbnb it. A lot of people have that idea. It's not the worst idea. Yeah, not a bad idea. It got to be a better idea with Airbnb. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be a rental. I had a guy that worked for me. He used to be a house manager. He quits because he's gonna go, he's got like four rental properties and he's operating them. And I'm like, okay, well, you're an entrepreneur. Congratulations to you, but I guess my loss. But uh, his, his retirement plan was I'm gonna buy property. I'm gonna fix it up. I'm gonna rent it. See, a lot of people do that. I buy it, I, I, I buy a condo or I buy an apartment in a college town, I fix it up and I rent it to the college students and it gives me an income for life. It's not a bad idea, it's a 20th century idea. And Airbnb is a 21st century twist on the idea to get a higher, uh, you know, more of a, a higher utilization on it, maybe a higher yield on it. So that's the second idea. The third idea is um, I can just buy $100,000 worth of the S&P index or big tech s and up 14% a year for a decade. Big tech's up 19% a year for a decade. Nice thing about it is it's lower headache than owning the property. On the other hand, you don't really have property rights if you own a security. The problem with securities versus property, and this is a, it's a more deep philosophical issue, but if I own a building I have the option as the property owner to mortgage it, to sell it, to put a lien on it and to rent it. When I say put a lien on it, I mean like maybe you sell the air rights above your parking lot for $20 million in New York City and you keep mm -hmm. the parking lot. If I own the parking lot and, you're, and you own a share in my REIT and you have one one thousandth and you're a limited partner, you don't have the right to force me to sell the air rights. You can't force me to sell it, right? So you don't really have any governance. You, you can't sell it, you can't put a lien on it. You can't take a mortgage against that because you're not the property owner, you're the security owner. So when you own securities, you're a limited partner with limited rights and you have impaired rights. Property rights are better. Now, if you're a rich person, you can buy a building. But buying a building, if you're a middle-class person, I guess, and if you're willing to work on the weekends, you can buy an apartment and you fix it up yourself, but it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. right? Um, so securities were created to give people the ability to own something, to own an asset that was low maintenance, but you, but you suffer from dilution of the securities because your property rights are impaired or the general partner might issue more securities and you have no control over that, right? So, 
Why is Bitcoin special? Because Bitcoin allows you to buy $387 worth of property. You can't buy one one-thousandth of a building, but you can buy one one-thousandth of a Bitcoin. And so this, um, this idea that, that I want to save money for 30 years and I want something better than gold, right? Property is better than gold because property you can rent mm-hmm. and you can mortgage and you can lien. And I want better than a security. Secu- property is illiquid, but high, but high quality. A security is liquid, but lower quality. Gold is this kind of, you know, dumpy dead metal thing, which is, <laughs> It's like maybe got all the all the you know liabilities of both, but you know it was the best idea we had going a, a, a bearer asset right mm-hmm. a bearer monetary asset and so I guess it's got that going for it. I could carry a bar of gold around if I could somehow get through an airport with a bar of gold. <laughs> uh, hypothetically, theoretically, it's a bearer asset. Practically speaking, it's only a bearer asset as long as you don't have that much of it. And when you have a lot of it, it, start, it ceases to become a bearer asset anymore and it and becomes kind of a pile of rocks. So that's why I think Bitcoin is special or digital property in general is special. If we come back to this digital transformation, mm-hmm. I think the thing that most people miss is, and they, is that they keep getting trapped in this debate over it's a currency and the government's gonna shut down the currency and it's, it's uh, opposite to the US dollar and it becomes a political patriotic you know debate and i don't think that's very constructive and also it's not a very helpful model or metaphor to think about it it'd be much better if you said ram mcnally sold this 500 page atlas and that's here that's a analog map and google sold digital map and when Google took that analog map and scanned it, they took the weight out of it. And then they realized they could just go ahead and scan all the satellite images. And pretty soon, instead of 500 pages of maps, you had 500 million pages of maps. And then they took the weight around and then they, and, and pretty soon, instead of a million copies of the, map, of the atlas, you had a billion copies. So you had 100 million pages and a billion copies. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's a lot more map. And then the next thing is they gave you the ability to expand and contract it. And if your eyes aren't that good, that is pretty obviously a benefit to be able to zoom in and zoom out. So that got better. And then the next thing they started, um, they started telemetering their Android phones and they put the traffic on the map and you can see how fast the traffic is moving on the road. And that's a trick you could never do with an analog map. Mm-hmm. And then they made the phone start talking to you and pretty soon the phone can tell you which way to drive. And then they marked all the restaurants and then they told you whether the restaurant was open and they told you, you know, they gave you the photos. Pretty soon you can get the menu and the photos of the food and the reviews and the traffic, you know, and, and you could see where we're headed here, which is eventually the car, you get in the car and you say, take me to a cool place that's open now that I'm gonna enjoy. And the car does the rest of the work for you. And that was, a possibility of a digital map, but an analog map was never gonna get there. And what you ended up with was a smarter, faster, stronger map. 
And, the, and when you went from analog to digital, you went from something worth a few hundred million dollars to something worth a few hundred billion dollars, right? And, and it's, there's no politics in this, right? This is not ideology, right? This is just technology. That's the old way, this is the new mm -hmm. way. If I take digital gold versus analog gold, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, that's a million dollars worth of gold. That's a million dollars worth of digital gold. That has weight, that has no weight. That you can't subdivide, that you can subdivide. You, you ever try to recombine gold? It's like you gotta put it into a, into a forge and a fire and it's hot and it's dirty and it's dangerous. This is clean and quick and easy and free. That's money that moves at the speed of light that you can program a million times a second that you can give to 8 billion people and fetch back. That is just gold. If that is worth $5 trillion or $10 trillion, and you can debate whether it's five or 10, let's say it's $5 trillion is the monetary premium on gold. I kind of rather think that it might be $8 trillion is the monetary premium on gold. It's trillion, if that's that, and this moves at the speed of light, smarter, faster, stronger, it's already, you know, 10X better. Like Google Maps is more than 10X better than Rand McNally Maps. Apple Music is more than 10X better than the DVD or the CD or the, re or the vinyl record or the whatever. Um, there's just one last point that I think is really important, which is Einstein said matter is energy and energy is matter. What is property? Property is economic matter. What is money? Money is economic energy. Can you convert money into property? Sure you can. Can you convert property into money? Sure you can. In the 20th century, it takes six months to sell a building. There's a 6% commission. It becomes money. The money loses 1% of its value a month. Okay, that's the system. 21st century Bitcoin, you can convert the the property into money in a few minutes. The commission is 0.1%. It's liquid. You can move it anywhere in the world and it doesn't lose its energy, right? It still lasts forever. So is, is Bitcoin digital money? Yeah. Is it digital property? Yeah. Is it digital energy? Yeah. People are like, well, how can it be digital energy? Well, how can that be digital music? But does digital music exist, right? I have a piano, you sit down, you play the piano, I record, I put it in a little file, I send it, they're like, well, but, 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 but it's not the piano, I, I know. I send it to around the earth and if you have a speaker and you have a power source and you have a decoder, the music comes out the other end, right? Like, well, it's not perfectly the same as the piano. Well, if you actually put a Steinway Spirio piano on this end and a Steinway Spirio piano on that end and the file moves between them, then it really is exactly the same. We, we pretty much decode it back the way it was. What's going on here? Symphony Orchestra plays Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right? The old way was you have to hire 100 musicians that have spent 30 years of their life or 15 years of their life mastering the skill and you can listen to Beethoven's Ninth. The next way is I put it on a vinyl record and it doesn't sound quite as good. The next way is I make it digital and I run it out of speakers and it sounds better. And then eventually I 
run out of super high quality speakers and I give it to eight billion people and they run it a million times a year and it's free and it's digital music and it's pretty damn good. And can you make money? Yeah, a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money through the digital transformation of music. And so what I see here is with, with digital energy, it's like the same exact thing. I, I put, um, I have a megawatt of power. If I uh, sell the megawatt of power at 12 cents a kilowatt hour, it's about a million bucks. If I hold the energy as a megawatt of electricity, I put it in a battery, I lose 2% of the power every month. I lose 24% of the power a year, 24% inflation rate on a battery. If I send it down electricity line, 6% transaction cost. Move the electricity 10 times, lose 60% of the money. Hold it for, you know, one, hold it for three years, cut the amount in half. Half life of electricity in a battery is three years if you had the perfect battery. It's pretty obvious that's analog energy. Mm -hmm. That's electromagnetic energy. That's a way to store it. I guess I could store it as metallic energy, convert it to steel or convert it to aluminum, energy in metallic form. Or I could store it in digital form, convert it to Bitcoin. You run a megawatt of power through a SHA-256 S19 miner, you'll end up with about five or $6 million, five and a half million dollars worth of Bitcoin right now. Once you've uh, generated the Bitcoin and your cost is the capital cost of the SHA-256 miner and the engineering to run the center and the like. So you got a cost there, but now you've got digital energy. Now your inflation rate zero. Now you can hold it for a thousand years. You can move it, a, you can send it a thousand times. Transaction fee is next to nothing. It's, it's effectively nothing on the lightning network and you know what it is on the Bitcoin network. And you're like, well, but, but how's it digital energy? How do you get it back to be energy? And the answer is, okay, I send a billion dollar block of it to Tokyo. I run it through an exchange. Heat exchanger, decoder? No, I run it through a Bitcoin exchange and I convert it back into yen and I take the yen and I buy electricity from the Tokyo Power Company. And when do I do that? Whenever I wanna do that, right? You're like, well, what if there is no electricity? Well, yeah, I guess if, there's, if, if the world comes to an end and there is no Tokyo Power Company, then I guess we can't call it digital energy for Tokyo. But that's like, what if there's no speakers and I give you a music fall? <laughs> If I obliterate all of the speakers and all the computers in the world, then your digital music isn't really digital music either. And if I obliterate all the iPads, your digital book isn't really a digital book. I suppose, you know, I suppose if I obliterate the human race, then all this digital stuff doesn't matter. But as long as there's a civilization that can produce electrical energy, I can exchange the digital energy for fiat energy. What's fiat? Uh, currency is, is political energy. You can think of it as that, political energy. Mm -hmm. Japanese political energy, Russian ruble political energy, Turkish political energy, dollar political energy, Chinese political energy. So what do I do? I swap the digital energy for political energy. I swap the political energy, i.e. currency, current, uh, for electromagnetic energy. Or you want, you can have steel, mineral energy, you know, or, or, or metallic energy. You want mineral energy, you buy a block of granite. Right? Granite is mineral energy. 
You want liquid energy? Buy a bunch of oil, right? Maybe you don't want energy. Maybe you want matter. So I send a billion dollars to Tokyo. I buy a building. Maybe you want to do some work with it. I send a billion dollars to Tokyo and I hire 10,000 people to play Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Beethoven's Ninth or whatever, or just do stuff, build me stuff, right? What, what you have is you just have, you have the exchange of energy for matter and matter for energy. And what's clear is the civilization is built on top of energy systems. Right? And, uh, and uh, John D. Rockefeller, what did he do that made him the richest man in the world? He uh, came up with a way to distill crude oil into standard oil. They called the company standard oil. People don't think about the word standard oil. Standard oil meant he had one uniform quality of liquid energy that worked, that didn't gum up your engine, that wouldn't blow up in your face. It was a pretty big deal. If you can standardize oil, you create standardized energy. He created, he basically developed and refined and distributed liquid energy to the world. And it was powerful enough to allow the United States to win both world wars. I mean, it's, it's, it, it tilted the course of Western civilization because Rockefeller provided liquid energy to the West and we used that energy to defeat you know, the, the Axis. And you can trace the wins in World War I and World War II and many other struggles to the superior energy system. So is that happening with Bitcoin? Are we twisting, are we twisting civilization again? I, I think it is. I, I think that if you look at civilization and you say, what do we build the 20th, 20th civil, century civilization? It's like a layer of liquid energy followed by what? A layer of metallic energy. Carnegie gave us steel. Mm -hmm. Steel is the apex metallic energy. Ask any civil engineer, what's the best material to build anything with? The answer is steel. Mm -hmm. Ask any aerospace engineer, what's the best material to build anything with? The answer is aluminum. Mm -hmm. Andrew Mellon became a very wealthy person, a patron of the arts because of the Aluminum Company of America. Aluminum, steel, oil, these are all just forms of energy, right? One is a is metallic form of energy, the other is electromagnetic form of energy. I mean, Tesla gave us electricity, right? The other one's a liquid form of energy. You could even argue water, liquid organic energy. Every city on earth, where was it built? Base of a river. No river, no city, right? If you, the water of life. Well, it's energy for us. Yes. Yes, like human civilization is all about harnessing energy and the obvious networks are a river, a port, a seaport, mm -hmm. an airport, a railroad, right? Techniques like electricity, oil, steel, aluminum, and radio networks, right? Communications networks and the like eventually giving way to the digital information network, which we call the internet. And now we have Bitcoin. And what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is digital energy. And it, what makes it energy as opposed to property? Well, if I create a billion dollar digital hotel and I can move it at the speed of light, it's digital property, it's indestructible. But the thing that makes it energy is the fact that I can rent the hotel out by the room minute. I can decompose the hotel into a million pieces, send it to the four corners of the earth, morph it, and then reconstruct it again 
with no uh, friction and and no uh, entropic loss, right? And so I, I know that a digital hotel is better than a bricks and mortar hotel. Right? Steel and glass is better than bricks and mortar and digital is better than steel and glass. But a digital hotel where I can move it at the speed of light and I can rent it out by the room in it starts to feel not like a, a matter at all. It feels like energy, energy well, I, you, converting you to, into matter. You explain this one to me, a digital hotel, how, how is that? How am I using it? Like digital me, money makes sense over okay, physical money. Okay, let's backtrack here. Yeah. The fountain blows behind you. The fountain blow has got a thousand rooms in it, let's say. Room night in Miami Beach, $400, $500 a night, mm -hmm. pick a number. They can expect 70% occupancy rate. Okay, you bought the property, you got the occupancy rate, you got a lot of fixed cost. Okay, what do you do with the other 30% of the rooms that are empty? Nothing, nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're gonna run to 70% occupancy effectively at $500 a room night. So what if I make it digital? Well, my first advantage is I don't have to repaint it, right? I mean, the maintenance costs deteriorate. There's, you know, there's, it's not gonna sink into the sand. You're not gonna have a hurricane hit it, right? It's digital, it's, it's, it's evanescent. So uh, the maintenance cost on digital property is much lower than physical property. But now it's still a thousand rooms. Okay, I wanna rent out the rooms, right? What, what's the equivalent of renting out a room? Well, I mean, it's like if I loan you if I have a million dollars and I loan it to you, that's like renting the room to you, right? Hold on, hold on. Are we in the metaverse here? No. <laughs> like, how am I staying in a digital hotel? We're not in the metaverse. Like, this is real. This is only metaverse if I if I do this in Second Life or Fortnite. How do I stay in a digital hotel? Oh, you're not staying in a digital hotel. It's a metaphor. Yeah. You've got a billion dollars and you can buy a hotel with a thousand rooms. Mm-hmm and that's a hotel, or you can buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay? If you have a hotel with a thousand rooms, it, if it was a magic hotel, if it was hypothetically digital, the thing I'd be able to do with it that you can't do with a physical hotel is I would be able to sell the th take the 300 rooms that are empty and send them to Tokyo and Paris and London mm -hmm. where, I can, where I can rent them. So you see, if the hotel could be decomposed and moved at the speed of light, I would go from 70% occupancy to 100% occupancy. And just bear with me, I'll explain how. Yeah, just I think a bit that's a second. Can. So the other thing that you would realize is if it was a mad, let's call it a magic hotel to make it easier. I if it's it. a magic hotel, I could, I could send the extra rooms anywhere on earth where there was demand for the rooms with the blink of an eye. And if you thought about it, you'd realize that half of the time the room is not occupied even when someone's renting it. If you're staying in, you're not in your hotel. You probably have a hotel room here in Miami, but you're not in it. So if the hotel proprietor could actually rent that room out by the hour instead of by the day, then they could double the occupancy of it because most hotels aren't occupied more than 12 hours a day. You can't do it in the real world because you have real world constraints. It's too complicated. It takes too long to clean the room up, et cetera. But imagine if you had computer programs that moved instantly, they could just turn the room over and they could not just rent out a thousand room nights, they could rent out 2000 room nights because they would do it twice a day. Now you're up from 70% occupancy to 200% occupancy. But then you start to do an optimization and you say, well, why would I just constrain the hotel to Miami Beach? Why don't I move the hotel to Tokyo where the room rates double if I can sell them out? 
So now you get from 200% occupancy to 400% occupancy. And you start to think a little bit faster and you're like, well, why, why am I renting out the room by the hour? Why don't I rent out the room by the minute? Right? You know, and so instead of a instead of a a thousand room nights or twenty-four thousand room hours, now I'm sixty times twenty-four thousand room minutes. And then you start thinking, well, you know, people only pay a certain amount of money for a room, but if it was a double suite, they pay more. But if it was a conference room, they might pay more. So what if I could just morph the real estate into the highest value use real estate by the minute? And what, you're, what you see is I'm getting a higher rent on the digital property because I can change it or reconfigure it every minute to the highest best use and I can move it to wherever in the world there's demand for it. Now, what I just described is DeFi, uh, decentralized finance. Let's apply it to <clears throat> Bitcoin. It's a, instead of a billion dollar hotel, it's a billion dollars of Bitcoin. And instead of renting the room to sleep in, I'm borrowing the asset because I need, I need the financial asset, maybe to short it, maybe as collateral, maybe to do something with it. But I'm renting it nonetheless. So I'm paying a fee, 4%, 5%, 10%, something. But I only need it for a certain amount of time. So when your property becomes digital, your maintenance costs collapse, but your yield explodes. Your yield triples, right? If you have that hotel in Austin, Texas, or let's say even worse, you have a hotel in, um, in New Zealand and New Zealand locks down and now no tourists are going to New Zealand and your occupancy rate goes from 70% to like 15% and you're stuck. The problem in the real world is fixed cost and fixed uh, assets. Right, your staff is fixed and the asset is fixed. And the beauty in the digital world is you have no fixed assets and you have no fixed cost. And so on one side, your risk collapses. On the other side though, your yield, your rental opportunity explodes. So if you ask the question, uh, what's more valuable, physical property or digital property? The obvious answer is digital property because you can sell it to anybody on earth. You can rent it to anybody on earth. You can rent it at any frequency, at any time scale, and in any form, and you can do it faster. And you can, in a hotel, you have to hire human beings to work in the hotel, right? Yep. Now, what if I hypothetically created a robot that moved a million times faster than a human being that worked for free on a fusion reaction? You could put that in the hotel. Would your hotel not be easier to run? and more valuable, you're running the hotel, your costs go to zero, right? If all your labor is infinitely productive and free, your costs go to zero. You can't do it in the real world because you have to use real people and real mass. But in, in what you'll call the metaverse, right? In, yeah. your, in your cyber world, all your work can be done by software. It doesn't need to be done by people. So when you digitally transform something from the analog version to the digital version, you can upgrade it with software. And we see this, for example, digital maps, right? It's, it's not people doing the work for Google, it's software doing the work for Google. Mm -hmm. Digital music, it's not people playing the music, it's software playing the music, I can upgrade the music. There's still a people input and a maintenance. The people put the stuff in, but 
you scale it up with software, you yeah. don't scale it up with people. You scale it up with software running on computer chips and both of them are getting faster and faster. And the marginal cost is the cost of the electricity. It's not the cost of the energy. For example, look at the library around you, right? If you wanna give this library to a billion people, you have to manufacture a lot of books and chop down a lot of trees. If Google wants to give this library to a billion people, it costs them marginally nothing. I mean, a, a billion times less, at least a million times less, right? Because it's a digital library, not a physical library. So I think my point here is digital property is pretty obviously more valuable than physical property because you can develop digital property with computer chips and software. And you can develop physical property with bulldozers and steel and glass and people. But are you, is, is the point you're getting at is that all investment now in physical property is a, an opportunity cost of buying Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> I would say that... Uh, we're still going to need some, someone to do that, though. We're going to need some hotels. Yeah, but maybe now we're getting back to the theoretical issue, which is we're going to demonetize all the physical property in the same way we're going to demonetize the gold. You still need gold to wear. I have a gold ring on. You still need property to live in, but, it's, but the value of the property should collapse to the utility value and not carry the monetary premium. And what you see in this world mm -hmm. is that we have monetized metals and we've monetized commodities and we've monetized securities and we have monetized property, especially right, the definition of uh, investment property. <clears throat> right by definition, uh, how many people buy a second home because they need it? Nobody. Very few. Uh, what I mean to say is, let me state it. Yeah. Let me state it more precisely. How many people buy an investment property to rent out to someone else because they needed to do that? I mean, plenty do it because they want the extra income. They want the retirement income. They see it as an investment. Yeah, so they, they do it uh, to, mon they're monetizing or they're converting their fiat currency. I give you $100,000, you put it in a bank, you know you're not gonna get any they want yield. yield. They want yield. So you have to invest. Yeah. So, so their choice was buy stocks, be become a limited partner in someone else's company, or buy a small property where they're the general property, their general partner in their own company. Or, or come in, go into some kind of mixed partnership with two or three other people, right? Where they're a partial partner. Or go buy something like gold that they think will hold value. The, these are all being monetized. And as Bitcoin grows, Bitcoin is the ideal money. So if I decide I'm going to sell my second or third investment property and buy Bitcoin with it, Presumably, the demand for investment properties and the demand for gold, both of those should decrease, mm -hmm. right? So as the demand for those decreases, the price will come down. And so that means that if you wish to buy a, a first home, it will be cheaper for you, right? The price of the property for its utility value will become less. It, it'll approach the utility value. And on the other hand, it's a lot better idea for a person to buy a Bitcoin and collect yield forever without dealing with the issue of, you know, your, the, the renter trashed the property and defaulted on the rent and, 
didn't pay you and then a tsunami hit it and the, the roof collapsed. So is this why you keep buying Bitcoin? Buying it for, was it you said to Joe Squawk, will you stack forever? There's another 7,000 announced today. But, I mean, the reason we buy Bitcoin is because it's our strategy, right? Mm. Right, we have, a, we have a financial strategy, which is to acquire and hold Bitcoin. We're a public company. We've disclosed it to our public investors, right? The, the real key in the marketplace is you should have a strategy, be transparent about it and, and, do it, and pursue it with integrity. You know, LVMH has a strategy to acquire luxury brands. And if they buy Hermes, you know, Hermes tomorrow, no one's going to bat an eyelash. But if Bernard Arnault went and he got into a totally different business, if he were to buy Square Cash or Twitter, people would look askance and think you're getting outside of your lane and this is not your expertise. So I think the key with a public company is you need to keep faith with your investors, right? Mm -hmm. Right. They bought my stock expecting me to do this, right? They didn't buy my stock expecting me to like trade, you know, other dog coins. Well, they did now, maybe not 18 months ago. Well, we've been very transparent, actually. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you could write a book on this, but the whole point is before we bought a single Bitcoin, we put out a press release saying we're considering buying Bitcoin. Yeah. And when we bought the Bitcoin, we, we put another press release saying, we'll also buy you out if you don't like the strategy and you have 20 days to tender your shares at a premium if you don't want to be invested in a company that owns Bitcoin. Right? So we've been very, uh, very decisive, or sorry, very progressive and transparent about what we did. Now, the, now the, I guess the deeper question is, why did we adopt that strategy? Well, I, think I think I know. I, I kind of answered that. First, we adopted it defensively, then we adopted it opportunistically, and then we adopted it strategically because we've come to the conclusion that Bitcoin is the apex property of the human race and it's digital energy. And, you know, if you said, what's the best investment idea 150 years ago, I would have said, how about a liquid energy? Liquid energy that you know allows you to power the world and power a ship. You ever try rowing a boat across the ocean? Then try sailing a boat across the ocean. And then imagine Rockefeller shows up and says, well, I have this you know, drum of diesel and you can just put it in and the thing will go three times as fast and you don't need sails anymore and you don't have to worry about the wind and you probably won't die. It's, you know, it's like, it wouldn't have been a hard sell, right? Like. Like it's pretty miraculous what what Standard Oil did. So, but I think it's like what you were telling me earlier when you started talking about back in two thousand and you know whatever buying Amazon, Google, Facebook. That's what you're doing. This is what you're doing with Bitcoin. You're at that point. Uh, something bigger than that. I mean, because Amazon, Google, and Facebook are securities. Mm. They're securities and they're quasi-digital monopolies, but they're companies that, op that operate um, a dominant digital network. And Bitcoin is bigger than that because it's not a security, it's property. That, that makes it somewhere between 10 and 100 times bigger because it's property, common property, not a security. And it's a protocol, it's not a company. And it's, uh, and, and it's a deflationary asset. Those are all inflationary securities, right? There are more, there's more Amazon stock today than there was five years ago. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it's a similar strategy, right? Bitcoin, Bitcoin is like owning uh, digital gold on a big tech network, but it's better than any of the big tech companies and it's better than gold, right? It's, mm -hmm. And so in that way, it's more powerful. <laughs> and, um, you know, what, what I did personally as a personal investor was I invested and took big positions in Apple and Amazon and the big tech networks, but it, it was, it was um, a personal portfolio investment. But I would say what we're doing here is a business, it's an in, intent business strategy to commercialize digital energy. So you're in, you're in the energy business now. Yeah. Yeah. Like come back to, to Rockefeller. Like yeah. what, how did Rockefeller build Standard Oil? Well, they, they commercialized liquid energy. What does that mean? He basically raised as much money as he could and he bought everything. He bought everything, right? Like uh, he bought everything, cleaned up everything, standardized everything, right? He was bullish consistently 40 years running you know, so bullish on that industry that his great, great grandchildren were still owning shares of those companies 100 years after he's dead, 80 years after he's dead, right? Like, like uh, so it wasn't like just an investment strategy. It was something a bit deeper, right? It's, it's, a, it's a business development. Um, did, did you did you know you were doing this at the start, or is this something you've recognized? No, as I said, it was like we started defensive, then yeah. it became opportunistic, then it became strategic. And the strategic part is this epiphany it's, that you're. It's the, you know, the epiphany. This is digital energy. So, and and, and I, I want to make one yeah, more point. Like yeah. <laughs> with gold, gold is not digital energy. Gold is not metallic energy. Not really. The problem with or it's it's the. It's a much weaker form because gold is losing two to 3% of its energy value every year. And because you can't really develop gold on a big tech network mm -hmm. and, and control of gold as an asset rests with the gold bankers, right? It's like, it's, it's a much weaker thing. And so because it's weaker, there is no gold company. There's no gold miner that could pursue the strategy that we're pursuing. For example, if the gold, if gold was really money, gold miners would never sell gold. They would, they would mine less gold. They would hoard the gold and they would borrow money to buy more gold. Right? But, but you see the opposite with gold miners. Gold miners overmine the gold. They dump gold on the market. They mine so much gold that they, they pay a huge 30% corporate income tax. Then they still have extra cash. So then they go buy back their debt. They don't borrow money at two, they could borrow money at 2%, Peter. Instead, they loan money to banks at 2%. So they're mining gold, tearing up the rainforest to mine the gold, to dump the gold, to drive the price of the gold down, to pay the tax so they can loan money and get, so they can buy dollars to get a 2% yield and then when they finish with that, they've still got extra money left. So instead of buying gold with it, they dividend that out to you, the shareholder, and then you pay tax on it. So gold miners are revving the engine to get 
US dollars and get rid of the gold, right? That, that's, uh, that's obviously more of a commodity, a commodity uh, strategy. If you believe that the price was gonna go down, you would sell as much as you could as soon as you could. But with Bitcoin, you have something different. With Bitcoin, I think the unique thing here is that it's appreciating, right? Statistically, like 170% a year for the last decade, up 225% in a year. And because it's appreciating, you have a different strategy, right? Not only can you buy it, like, like people joke, right? Like, are you gonna be 5% exposed or 100% exposed? Like. I'm 500% exposed. I'm not 5%, 50%. Not, we started with $250 million of capital. Mm -hmm. We bought $3.5 billion of Bitcoin. Hold my beer. It's like, okay, we had, we really literally had 250 million capital because the other 250 million, I had to give back to the shareholders in the Dutch auction. Mm -hmm. So we had 250 million in capital 100% exposed would be buy 250 million worth of Bitcoin in weight, right? What we did was something different than that. What we did is we issued equity and we issued debt to buy more. So we expanded the capital structure. Now, why would you do that? Well, you would do that if the cost of the capital is less than the expected return on the asset. So what's the expected return on digital property? 170% for the last decade, scale it down, 20%? Still worth it. 30%? Still worth it. It's a property development strategy like the related companies or anybody else that, you know, I borrow $10 billion, I build a building, I think I'm gonna pay 4% interest, I think I'm gonna get an 8% return, that means I scrape a 4% arbitrage on $10 billion. But uh, what's, what's more valuable than property, right? Digital property. What's more valuable than digital property? Digital energy. In theory, what is the most valuable thing in the universe? The answer is digital energy. Digital energy is the theoretical most valuable, high, most highly appreciating asset in the universe. And what's the likely yield? Heck, we, we've talked about that before. I mean, I think the price appreciates with the inflation rate and the fiat frame of reference you're in. If you're in Turkey or Argentina, it's going up very fast. Mm -hmm. If you're in the US, it's just going up. It appreciates with the technical utility. When I build it into Coinbase and Binance and Square and PayPal and Apple, and whatever, it goes up. It appreciates with the adoption as, as people adopt it as a useful asset. MicroStrategy adopted it. Right, Bitcoin didn't go up because of the inflation and it didn't go up because of the technical utility. When the MicroStrategy effect is MicroStrategy adopted it as a treasury asset, then a primary treasury asset, then a financial strategy, and that created three and a half billion dollars of demand for Bitcoin, one company. And then, the, and then the last reason it goes up is it goes up because of productivity of the civilization, or it goes up a productivity of the network of people that adopt the asset, right? If hypothetically everybody in the world uses Bitcoin, 100% Bitcoin, and every other currency disappears, there's no inflation, then Bitcoin will appreciate in value with the productivity of the civilization 
And, you know, maybe with the differential utility, if there's any other asset that people might be using. But, but if, if Bitcoin's the only asset and it's the only currency, then it will appreciate in value every year based upon the true productivity growth of the human race, right? It's 4%, mm-hmm. 3%. So what you're looking at long-term is long-term, it's gonna go up three, 4% a year, but that might be 30, 40, 50 years out. Well, at that point, you might be looking for other assets to diversify and to get better than 4%. Maybe build a hotel. Those, I, I guess, you know, the distinction I make on that is is uh, there's a macroeconomic strategy and the macroeconomic strategy is I swap a weak asset for a strong asset. Mm-hmm. And then there's an investment strategy and that's I buy an asset that I think is undervalued or underappreciated uh, by everybody else. And I, and I basically, I accumulate a portfolio of risk. See, I, I don't think I'm taking risk when I'm a macroeconomic investor. Like for example, if you were to say, Mike, would you rather own uh, pesos or uh, gold? I'd say, well, gold, gold, right? If you said, would you rather own gold than the S&P index? I would rather own the S&P index. You'd rather own the S&P index than Bitcoin. I'd rather own Bitcoin. I'm just swapping an asset class for a different one. I'm not really taking this uh, comp- corporate execution risk. I think when you're an investor, when you buy Apple or Amazon stock, you're taking execution risk, right? Amazon might get unionized. Apple has a supply chain. Google can get fined by the EU, right? You've got political risk. You've got execution risk. I mean, Twitter has a new CEO today. What will happen? Well, that's the risk, right? There's no CEO of Bitcoin. There's no CEO of gold. There's no CEO of S&P 500 asset class. There's no CEO of um, land in Texas, right? Those are properties, right? These other things are securities. When you get into securities, you take a, a heightened degree of risk. And so if you... If you're in the business of investing in securities, okay, well, you're running a hedge fund. And people said to me, well, are you running a hedge fund? No, I'm not running a hedge fund. I'm simply making a macroeconomic election. I don't view it as any riskier than if you lived in Argentina converting pesos to dollars. Mm -hmm. That's not, you're not a hedge fund to invest, to convert pesos to dollars, right? you're just making a macroeconomic or you're saving your money as opposed to investing your money. And I think, um, I think, uh, will we ever get in those businesses? I don't know, that would be an election to take on new types of risk and that's a long way out. So I don't really much worry about it because the opportunity for digital energy is just so extreme. Well, it's so early. I think that's the point you're making. It's like once everyone has Bitcoin, if it's based on true productivity, it's 4% gain. Whereas right now, if you're going to be earning 170% a year, you might as well buy as much of this as you can to protect your wealth but increase your wealth. But you're, you're buying a lot. You know, MicroStrategy controls a lot now, but there's no limit to how much you would buy? If you have... um. If you have a, a publicly traded company that's an operating company, mm. you, you can hold up to 40% of your assets in a security on your balance sheet. 
So like if you're Berkshire Hathaway and, and you're buying Apple stock, right? At some point, uh, there's a limit to how much Apple stock or how much other securities they buy because they bump up against this 40% limit. That's why Berkshire Hathaway will buy a railroad. That's why they own entire businesses because otherwise they become a financial, co an investment company per the SEC 40 Act. If you're an investment company, well, then, then you can own an entire portfolio of securities, but you lose all your other rights that an operating company has. So MicroStrategy is an operating company and Bitcoin is property. Mm -hmm. If we started buying securities like ETFs of Bitcoin, it would become a security that wouldn't be property. And then we would start to bump up against all sorts of limits. But you could think of us as like maybe the world's first digital property development company. Like if I said to you, I'm gonna have a public company and we're going to build out Vegas or you know, we're gonna build skyscrapers in New York City. Well, is there a limit to how much of New York City you wanna build? And the answer is, I wanna build it all, right? But here's the limit. The limit is the natural appreciation in, va in property values is more like 10% a year if the money supply is expanding at 10%. But there are, there are implications of owning or controlling that much Bitcoin, if Bitcoin does demonetize large uh, aspects of property and other assets and currencies, as you say, entities that you can control could end up controlling or you know, well, having a, a lot of power, a lot of you know, a strong financial position. You could be, you could have more Bitcoin than the U.S. government at some point if they take their time to end up buying some. You could, you most countries like. Do you think about the implications of that? No. <laughs> no. buy it. Look, if Bitcoin doubles every year for the rest of the decade, it might get to $100 trillion. And I suspect if the money supply expands at 15% a year, then it's going to double twice or one and a half times, which means we'd have $1,500 trillion of stuff, right? So, so if the money supply keeps expanding and Bitcoin keeps doubling, Bitcoin's going to be 7%. Okay, well... Big deal. Like, so at that point, it will be as noticeable as the S&P index. And what do we be? We'll be a small part of it, right? But it's, it's, it gets exponentially harder to, to buy Bitcoin, you might have noticed, right? Yeah, I've, yeah. It gets harder, yep. right? We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to stack at 60,000 than it is to stack at 10,000. But the people who are stacking at 10,000 were remembering back when they could have stacked at 1,000, regretting that. Yeah. And then you get the Max Kaisers reminding us how he was stacking at like $12 or I whatever know. it was, right? Um, no, so I think um, everybody, everybody just executes their strategy. <clears throat> We're, we happen to be the first public company out of the gate that established the ability to issue securities to buy Bitcoin, right? We, we established a Bitcoin strategy. How do we do it? Well, you know the story, the Dutch auction, mm -hmm. plus all of the various steps. And you shared that publicly, right? You made it like publicly available for other Everybody. companies. You and, you know, and some people go, well, why aren't more people doing it? But the yeah. answer is they are, right? It's all, it's all just a matter of perspective. Uh, as I said, 16 publicly traded Bitcoin miners that I can count off the top of my head. And, uh, 
you know, but they, Riot and Marathon and the right. There are lots of companies that are coming public that are adopting Bitcoin strategies, that are issuing stock, that are issuing debt, right? Marathon generated a, a they signed a credit line with Silvergate Bank to borrow money against their Bitcoin holdings. Mm -hmm. So you've got banking coming into the space, you've got public companies, you've got FDIC insured institutions coming into the space. I don't know, I guess there's must 30, 35 companies that are getting into the business now. But these are all Bitcoin companies. Did you think there would be more companies following your strategy who aren't Bitcoin companies, who saw what you, you've managed to achieve with this? I, no, I think it's hard. I mean, I, I think that they're coming at the rate that they can, uh, that they can arrive. I mean, I, I've said before what I think are the impediments you know, one of them is the accounting is is uh, prejudicial, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult accounting and it's indefinite, intangible. And so, if you have a cash rich, well capitalized company that works really well, that's growing, then if like an Apple or Google or a Facebook then if you were to buy large quantities of Bitcoin, then the accounting converts the volatility into a liability and you end up taking massive write downs against your balance sheet. And you also end up with max, massive gap operating losses. And then you have to explain that to your shareholders. And uh, that takes some courage and, can, and you have to have a reason. For example, if you, are, if you have more money than God, like more money than God, do you really have a reason to do something new? Mm -hmm. No, right? By definition, right? You have so much money, you don't have to. So the companies that are going to go through this are the ones that need to, or the ones that, not the ones that have infinite money that are growing 20% a year that have digital monopolies. They're the ones that are that are run by uh, a, a probably a charismatic, decisive CEO that either is the founder. And then I would bet the people that have them, if you find a value stock run by the founder who has a controlling interest in the value stock that's low growth, that has a lot of cash, that's got uh, a low multiple, right? Those are the ones uh, that would have the most to gain, the least to lose. Right. Right. Whereas the high growth stocks, if, you, if your company's valued at twenty times revenue, because you know because you're a story stock and you're whatever you're doing, and then you adopt this Bitcoin strategy, you're thinking, well, maybe my shareholders will blanch or there'll be some issue, and so I have something to lose, and yeah, yeah, you have something to gain, but with digital transformations, generally you have to hit that sweet spot where you where you don't have that much to lose, you have more to gain, but you have that you have the resources to execute. And that's the attacker's advantage. And that in a nutshell describes why most incumbents don't make the digital transformation, right? Like mm -hmm. why did IBM and Nokia and Kodak and Polaroid get hollowed out? And why is Rand McNally not here and and the like? It's, you know, or Xer what happened to Xerox? You know, it's just, all of these guys, they have a harder time being really decisive. Now, who has nothing to lose? Privately traded Bitcoin miners. Mm -hmm. if, you're a, if you're a Bitcoin miner and you're private, 
they're like, well, I should go public, right? When, like, it's hard, it's, it's harder to go public, but if I go public, my revenue multiple triples. And if my revenue multiple triples and I can keep the Bitcoin, that's good. And if I can buy more Bitcoin, that's even better. So the real key to the institutional adoption of Bitcoin in the public markets is a healthy capital market and a window that allows new companies to come public. Mm -hmm. And this is why generally it's the new companies in a capitalist system that bring new ideas because they have everything to gain, nothing to lose. It's much harder for an incumbent to transform themselves, right? It does happen, it's just rarer, right? It's a little bit harder because they, they tend to be caught by institutional inertia. And there's just, a, there's a, the accounting is an inertia, there's fear of a new thing is inertia. There's how many people, we, we talked about this before, how many people are critical of Bitcoin that spend 100 hours studying Bitcoin? Can you name one? I can't, name one. I mean, pfft. I'm sure there are, probably because they've had a bad time trading alts or they've had a bad time, like they've timed the market wrong or they've over leveraged, like, but not really. Yeah, so it's, it's, there's a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of power, but they don't have the motive. And then what you've got is, you've got a lot of people with the motive and they don't have a lot of money, but when you start to have people with the motive they get into the capital markets, you know, Marathon has $650 million more this month than they had last month, and they have the motive. So we're, we're just seeing that. And I, I said before, like, sometimes we want it to go faster, but I mean, do you really feel comfortable if the asset was growing 500% a year, year over year, or would you not think that maybe that's, a bit too much tempting karma. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. Uh, I actually like a more stable growth in the price. I would like the cycle, the four-year cycle to break. And so we don't think every four years is going to do the same thing because I think it's, I think it's not good for everyone. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, don't think it, I don't think it would be great. Yeah, so like, I mean, if I said to you, Bitcoin's going to track at 170% a year for the next two, three years, then 150, then 120, then 100, then 80, then 60, then 40, then 30. That's not bad, right? That's good. I used the metaphor before of, uh, you know, the shockwave. Um, we designed one airplane that can go faster than the speed of sound, like in 1965, the Concorde. Mm -hmm. And you know the story of the Concorde. And we flew it for a while and it was a struggle and it was never profitable. And then it eventually crashed and burned and then we didn't do it again. So the Concorde was difficult. Just about every commercial aircraft and even all the military aircraft, they fly less than the speed of sound. And the reason why is the speed of sound is the rate at which air communicates to itself. It, the, the, the airfoil is moving through the air and if it's moving faster than the speed of sound, the air can't get, the fluid can't get out of the way, which means you create a shock wave, which creates massive turbulence, which is massive dissipation of energy, massive friction. This is like breaking the speed limit that nature gave you. It's like the speed of light, another mm -hmm. important speed limit, right? Nature's got these speed limits. In, in uh, a hydrodynamic situation, we call it the hull speed. And it's the rate at which a, a ship can move through the water. 
and it's determined by Reynolds number, and it's the aspect ratio of the hull. So if you have a long hull with a narrow point, it goes fast, like a crew owing shell. And if you have a very wide hull, it moves slower. When you try to break nature's speed limits, you get shock waves, you get friction, things explode. The, um, the cost of going faster than the hull speed of a ship is the cube of the velocity. You wanna go twice as fast, it's like eight times as expensive, right? So there's a certain speed with which an asset can monetize, right? There's a speed at which Bitcoin can grow. There's a speed at which we can create ETFs and a speed at which we can, uh, we can give banks guidance to hold the asset. And there's a speed at which we can fix the accounting. And there's a speed at which we can educate all the senators and all the Congress people and all the regulators and all the mainstream media. And there's a speed at which people with billions of dollars can figure out the new thing. And when you try to go faster than that speed, you delaminate, right? And that's, that's when you get like those sparks. And we see those sparks because we're going faster than that speed. And I think that uh, it's very healthy if it backs down to whatever that speed is. And I, it seems to me that north of 100% a year is about as fast as you wanna go. And if you have something which is really utterly compelling, then, um, you just kind of uh, hook onto it and hold on and, and let that evolve. I think we've got, a, we've got a decade of that evolution, right? It just mm -hmm. takes that long for signal to, to move through the civilization. So. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by BlockFi. And you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. And you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And this show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. 
With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. There is someone who has followed the microstrategy strategy in yeah. some ways which wasn't a company which surprised a lot of people, which is El Salvador. Yeah, I, I kind of referred to them very early on as like the micro, the micro strategy of com, uh, countries because actually you were the first to do this. There can only be one first company to go out and do it like this and they're going to take the biggest risk in some ways but see the most benefits. As other companies start to adopt the same strategy, you get the compound benefits. I kind of feel like the same for El Salvador. I feel like as the first country to do it, they, they've taken the biggest risk. In some ways, in some ways, I'd say Bukele's taken a bigger risk than you, but we can argue about that separately. But again, as other countries come on, they'll see the compound benefits of other countries coming on board. What, what have you made of the El Salvador story? And you know, um, the reason we haven't really taken that much of a risk because if you read the bright line <clears throat> rules that govern publicly traded companies it's very clear that a publicly traded company can hold property. I didn't mean that kind of risk. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so our, our, our primary risk is our shareholder relations, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and, and just communicating, <laughs> uh, communicating to our employees, our customers, our shareholders, our vendors, what we're doing, right? That's our primary risk. I guess their risk is is the same in a way, right? They're communicating to their citizens. They've just got more, right? Their citizens, the businesses in, in the country and then all the other nations that they integrate with. And so they've got a massive communications effort as well. Um, our primary focus was balance sheet, right? They're, and their primary focus seems to be more like currency, you know, the, the, the P&L side. For example, um, if you're a country, the easy thing to do would be just to buy billions of dollars of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Just buy it. But uh, they didn't have their own currency, right? So, so if you had a currency like your Turkey and you bought billions of dollars of Bitcoin, then you would be converting your currency into a Bitcoin derivative. And then by inference, everybody with the currency is, owns a Bitcoin derivative and maybe the currency strengthens, right? Um, that's easy to execute, right? It's much harder to execute the introduction of a new currency, right? Be, and so I, I think what they wanted 
was they wanted the Lightning Network as a remittance network, mm -hmm. right? And they wanna put a bank in everybody's pocket, right? They wanna give everybody a mobile application that serves as a bank. So, so what, do they, what do you get with Shiva Wallet? You get a store of value via the Bitcoin asset. You also have the ability to move dollars around and so you've got, you've got the stable coin or the stable currency in the form of dollars. You've got the Bitcoin as the, as the store of value asset. And then you've got the lightning network as the remittance network. So they're sidestepping Western Union. They're sidestepping Visa, MasterCard. They're, they're sidestepping the need to roll out branches of banks. And... Um, and they're introducing a new, a new ideology, a discipline of uh, Bitcoin as store of value or introducing digital property mm -hmm. in the country. And then of course they paired it with some favorable tax laws that would cause a, a, a Bitcoin or crypto entrepreneur to be, uh, to be attracted to El Salvador. And, and those I get, and I suppose, and then they've got the added twist of the volcano mining, which is a separate thing. Um, let's monetize a volcano. Um, you know, what I think, Peter, is I, I think the world wants two things in a big way. <laughs> the world wants digital property in lieu of gold, in lieu of analog property and investment property, and in, in lieu of holding securities. They want digital property at any scale, at the speed of light, friction-free to 8 billion mobile devices. And that is Bitcoin. And they want trillions of dollars of it, 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 100 trillion, 200 trillion. They want that. Um, a lot of people don't know they want that. But I, I guess I would say five or 10% of the people know they want that. The other 90% don't know, but they'll figure it out. Sailor the engineer thinks what they really need is digital energy. And most people definitely don't get that, right? I think the entire 21st century economy needs digital energy, which means $500 trillion worth of digital energy moving at the speed of light, friction free from 8 billion devices across 100 million companies, no power loss, superconducting network. That's what I think. I don't think most people know they want that. I think a lot of people know they want digital property, but I think, even more people want digital currency. And by digital currency, I mean, they want the US dollar. <laughs> they want the US dollar stable coin on a crypto rail, let's say the lightning network, but it could be any network. Mm -hmm. They don't really give a crap. What they want is they want, I'm in Turkey. You, you follow the news, like I'm in Turkey, I have lira, I wanna convert my lira to dollars. Okay, my lira is dollars, it's not gonna debase, but it's in a Turkish bank. How long before an edict comes out freezing the bank accounts and converting your money from dollars back into lira and devaluing it for you? Well, mm. I mean, that's the Argentine playbook, right? That happened to me. Yeah, That happened in that. Lebanon. Yep. That happened in Cyprus, right? It's, it's, it happened in Russia. It happens in every currency collapse. It happened in Afghanistan. So um, if you're in Turkey, what you want or Argentina or wherever, what you want is dollars, but you can't get the dollars because there's no bank, right? Mm -hmm. If there was a bank, you don't trust the bank. 
So if I were to go to the street, if I were to take a poll of like 100 people in Africa or South America or Asia, and I would say, how many of you would like to own, convert all your local currency into dollars? Name one currency in the world that's stronger or more desirable than the dollar. And I'm, don't say Bitcoin, but say no. like a fiat currency. Swiss, Swiss franc? Maybe, maybe debatable, right? Yeah. But maybe, right? Not Chinese, right? Not CNY, you know, just about everything. We could have a little debate, but the Chinese currency would collapse if their capital controls came down. Yeah. Right? The reason they have capital controls in the Chinese wall is because literally they printed too much CNY, the currency would collapse and they've hyperinflated the economy. Their, their multiples on the, on the Shanghai Stock Exchange are 3X, the US stock multiples two years ago, right? And so if you think about it really hard, you realize the Chinese have an inflated currency. We know the Brazilians do, we know the Venezuelans do, we, we know the Argentines do, we know, fill in the blank. Right? We can debate, right? is the, is, are the Europeans better custodians? Huh. Not clear. But bottom line is everybody in the world, they either want the dollar or they want a currency kind of pegged to the dollar. Mm -hmm. What you would say about a Euro or a Swiss franc, if you liked it is, I like it because their bankers make sure that their currency stays stronger than the dollar. Well, listen, right? one of the things that has been really interesting about traveling a lot over the last two years is the amount of places where the dollar is accepted, which is incredible. It's not like that with the pound. I mean, the pound's fairly stable, but I can only spend the pound in the UK. It's just, that's it. But I've been to a number of countries around the world which will just accept the dollar. I had it in Cambodia. An interesting thing in Cambodia, they didn't want any with any creases in. Uh, it's most of the South America. People want dollars. It's liquid in a lot of countries. Something I observed, and I, you know, I traveled in Europe before the Euro. Okay. Before the European Union, and I'm sure you did too, I traveled around, menus are all in different languages. Yep. Different currencies, different languages, money changers, the signs are all different languages. After the Euro, one thing I noticed is all the menus switched to English, which is very interesting to me. It's like it was always English and Italian, English and French, English and Greek, at least in, in, the, in the wealthier part of the EU. And what I saw was the European Union crushed every local culture. And all the and also crushed every local currency. If you look at currency exchange, everything collapsed to the U.S. dollar after the EU formed. It used to be the year, the dollar was like thirty percent of currency exchanges, and then forty, and then fifty, and so, and eventually it got to be like ninety percent. I'm not sure local cultures have been that crushed. I've traveled a lot around Europe. It's been a long I think time there. I think my point is the English language spread rapidly with the uh, rise of the European Union, and you you know why? Because the Europeans needed English to communicate with each other, and the dollar spread. And so what we've seen for the last twenty one years is a trend mm. of the spread of the dollar and the spread of the English language. Now let's come back to the dollar. I mean, the the big idea here is one hundred and eighty currencies. 60 of them are pegged to the dollar, 66. Mm -hmm. There's 130 floating currencies. How many do we need? How many, are, how many really can compete? Not more than a dozen. So I really think what you're gonna see is if, if the citizens had their choice, 
you would see a collapse of 100 currencies overnight and everybody would switch. Like there's not a single South American currency that would survive, not mm -hmm. a single African currency that would survive, right? The mm -hmm. euro, the yen, maybe. The yuan is weak. The CNY is weak. The ruble, no, mm -hmm. right? And so what you, the question then is, well, why haven't they already? And the answer is because there's no digital dollar. Mm -hmm. There's tether. There's which, tether, which is which is an entrepreneurial digital dollar. Tether and circle. Actually, if you speak to Alex Gladstein, he's a he's a huge supporter of the tether because it's been it's like absolutely essential for people in places like Palestine. Alex Gladstein. Yeah, yeah. Human rights foundation. Yeah. He's places like Palestine or Lebanon, places <laughs> where the currencies are collapsing and people talk about them needing Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's still volatile. They they do need a that Bitcoin isn't the stable currency they need for day to day. And he talks about tether being super important. Yeah. And it is. Um, Tether is uh, Tether is the first uh, entrepreneurial ex example of a digital dollar, mm -hmm. but it's a security. It's a company. <laughs> There's a company behind it. There's people working it. It is not a property, and uh, and it is not an FDIC insured bank. Mm -hmm. and is not a public company and there are no auditors and people aren't quite sure what backs it. And so therefore it, we have seen stable coins go from nothing to 130 billion. And I guess what, 30 billion to 130 billion in 12 months or so, they, a massive explosion. But the world wants 10 trillion worth of this. It doesn't want 130 billion, right? It's, it's one of those things where the use case right now is the gray market and offshore crypto exchange settlement and crypto trading and hobbyists and, and crypto specialists, right? Um, the use case that will drive it to 10 trillion would be everybody on the planet using it to send money around, right? Like Apple Pay to everybody mm -hmm. or global remittance uh, of multinational corporations. When Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Google and Exxon Mobile and governments move money via stablecoin, right? It won't be a hundred billion, it won't be a trillion, it might not be 10 trillion, it might be 20, 30, 50 trillion, right? So the real opportunity is digital currency. You just have to trust it. And so I, I think that if you look at the regulatory actions in the past three months, the President's Working Committee on Stablecoin published their report and the message is clear, which is we want FDIC chartered institutions to issue stablecoins. And if you're not FDIC insured, you, you need to stand up to the same standards as, as an FDIC approved bank. And, and I read it as it's a transition from the first decade where the industry was entrepreneurial and Circle and Tether are entrepreneurial and Gemini and Binance, right? They're entrepreneurial and good for them. They, they made it work. But the next phase is institutional, which is we really want JP Morgan to issue a trillion dollars of stablecoin, right? And, mm. and But if you're Tether, maybe that's not so good for you, or maybe it is, right? If you're Silvergate, you're kind of here. Silvergate doesn't want JP Morgan to do it. Silvergate wants to do it. And then Tether is here, right? And what you have is you have the early movers that, uh, that delivered the products 
and then you have the institutional late adopters that are staring, and then you have the ones in the middle. Silvergate is just as, um, they're just as progressive as MicroStrategy, right? Mm -hmm. Silvergate and MicroStrategy, Coinbase, we're all crossing the chasm companies. All three are publicly traded, you know, publicly traded. And so we have one foot in the Bitcoin world of decentralization and the crypto world, and another foot in the institutional regulated world. And, and um, we have an opportunity to grow. Now, I, I think that, and we come back to this, this point that I was making, it is undisputed that the world wants trillions of dollars of stable coin. We mm -hmm. know they want it. And it's pretty clear the world needs trillions of dollars of digital property, needs it. A lot of people know it, not everybody know it, right? Those two things are clear. Everything else is murky, right? The rest is unclear. And coming back to El Salvador, well, they, I mean, they've got a currency. The real currency is the dollar, right? The property is the Bitcoin. The entire system would work much smoother if you had uh, US dollar stable coins moving on lightning rails. I think the reason that they had to make uh, Bitcoin legal tender was because they couldn't move the US dollars back and forth through the lightning wallet properly or you know, using, using uh, Bitcoin because Bitcoin's a transport protocol to move the money cross borders or something like that, right? I mean- I'm not sure on that one. You might have some other insight, but um, feel free to share. I mean, I, th I think it's for a number of reasons, um, but I, I think actually is that one of the reasons they wanted to do is get uh, more Bitcoin in the country owned by individuals, the state, companies, because they wanted to mitigate the effects of dollar debasement. Yeah, I, I suppose it encourages that. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm all in favor of that. But uh, I, guess, I guess my view on all this is it doesn't really make sense for Bitcoin to be spent on anything. <laughs> I, you know, we come back to the fundamental issue, yeah. right? Uh, the rational construct is an inflationary currency and a deflationary property. Like if you think about this really deeply, you don't really want to buy a Tesla with a Bitcoin because Bitcoin's going to a million dollars and the Tesla's going to zero. Mm -hmm. What you wanna do is borrow 50,000 in dollars at 4% interest to buy the Tesla. And then in 10 years, you'll have the million dollars and you'll be able to buy another Tesla and then you'll have $10 million. So if what you want is to construct a system that makes you wealthy and keeps you wealthy and, and keeps all the gears of commerce spinning, the system that works best is everybody holds a digital currency and they hold a digital property or a digital asset. They're both technically assets, which is why I distinguish one as property and one as currency. And then the strategy long-term is you keep financing the property to the currency. And it's actually, it's a benefit to you. For example, if you live in Argentina and you can own Bitcoin, you don't wanna pay for things with Bitcoin in Argentina. You wanna borrow pesos against the Bitcoin and pay for things in pesos because the peso is worth 1% of what it was, was 10 years ago. So 
If you borrowed a million pesos, it's going to zero and the Bitcoin is going to the moon. So you really want both. And you don't, you, you want to discourage people from ever selling or trading the Bitcoin. And you want to encourage them to, what you really want to do is, uh, is accelerate the development of a Bitcoin banking sector where you can own the Bitcoin and borrow against it mm -hmm. and securitize it. And so I think El Salvador is a complicated case because they don't have a currency. Yeah. Right, so that so they, if the, if you had a currency, it, it would be different. They don't have a currency; they have to have the U.S. dollar. I think it's pretty clear in the rest of the world, though. If we come back to this issue of currency, Peter, there's a hundred million companies, and every company has accounting systems that are wired for paying their employees and paying their vendors and selling their products in the fiat currency in the country in question. So if you were to calculate the amount of money spent on those, the accounting system is the nervous system of all those companies. The nervous system of the companies is set up. So like, like Oracle and SAP are the only two companies in the world that compete, you know, compete really favorably against Microsoft. They own the accounting systems of every big company in the world and they're almost impregnable. Like if you wanted to rip out the accounting system of Coca-Cola, it might, and you spent a decade and you had $10 billion, you probably couldn't do it in a decade for $10 billion. If I held a gun to your head and I said, I'm going to kill you and shoot everybody in your finance staff, if you don't rip out the accounting system, they'd all be dead. The accounting system isn't changing. It's that inertia. It's literally like trying to rip out all of the veins and all of the nerves in your arm and keep the arm. It's just, it's, it's, it's too, it's a brain transplant. It's too integrated. So <clears throat> the, the economy of the world is wired to run on those currencies. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you get rid of the currencies is you arm wave away every government and every corporation. So if you can imagine a future where you don't need companies and you don't need governments, then you can probably not have the fiat currency. But it's definitely not happening in this decade. Well, that's an that's interesting sure. segue because we can talk about the <coughs> revolution versus evolution because uh, there's uh, <coughs> a certain cohort within Bitcoin of people who are uh, consider themselves sovereign individuals or seek the sovereign individual lifestyle yeah. who are maybe more hardcore Bitcoiners, anarcho-capitalists, um, who definitely would be in the cohort that are who challenge you, who would maybe consider your strategy is defending the dollar, uh, whereas they want to, you know, they want to replace the Fed and they want the, they want to bring down government and they want to end you know, sovereign currencies. They want everything to be on a Bitcoin and a Bitcoin standard. Now look. I, I'm in the place where I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I believe in democracy. I don't believe in the big red button uh, of a libertarian ideal, even though I think libertarians have great ideas. But there are people who, who are saying to that, that to you. And I, I think the problem, even with a revolution, is if you burn down the government, the state, what we have now, it will just be replaced with the same. Whereas, to your point, the evolution allows you to incrementally make things better. Yeah, I, th I think there's an evolutionary view and there's a revolutionary view. And if you look, and the revolutionary argument is <clears throat> the currencies are bad, taxes are bad, governments are bad, big corporations are bad, the banks are bad. 
and we don't want to support any of them. That's and we're revolutionaries. The evolutionary view is: I invented oil and steel and electricity, and Isaac Newton invented engineering math. And if we is the world a better place with calculus, oil, steel, and electricity? And and should we introduce it? And the evolutionary view is apolitical. It's like it's it's uh, it's constructive and it's also cooperative, right? Every country can benefit from calculus, steel, oil, and electricity, mm-hmm. right? Every and computers. Every country, every ideology, and the human race is better. Um, if you look at the evolutionary view for Bitcoin. The evolutionary view would be um, Bitcoin is digital energy. It's a technology. Therefore, it's good for every country. And um, Bitcoin is digital property and it's a better balance sheet asset than <clears throat> cash or credit. So therefore, every company can and should buy Bitcoin. And it's also, because it's digital property, every country can use it as a treasury asset and they can back their currency with it. So um, I'm not asking for Turkey to abandon their currency or United States or Europe or Korea or Japan or Singapore or Malaysia to abandon the currency. I'm just, instead of telling them they have to abandon their sovereignty, right? And there's irony here, right? Like people that are in favor of sovereignty want someone else to abandon their sovereignty, right? Instead of telling the prime minister of Malaysia that I disagree with their currency and they should disband their police force and and stop taxing people and disband their army, I could just say, this Bitcoin will make your country richer and better. So it's a lot easier, just like I'm more likely to be able to introduce oil and steel and electricity into another nation than I am to be able to introduce my political system or my ideology. If you interpret Bitcoin as technology instead of ideology, then instead of taking the position that um, uh, we don't want to have money in the bank, our position would be, we don't mind money in the bank as long as that money is Bitcoin and not gold, or as long as it's Bitcoin and not S&P, or as long as it's Bitcoin and not dollars, right? Change the money, keep the bank. Maybe you don't trust the bank, but on the other hand, if, if your uh, brother-in-law is the chairman of the bank, and if you're at Thanksgiving dinner, and you say to your brother-in-law, you know, if your bank starts custodying Bitcoin, your stock price will triple and all your employees will be delighted and you'll be successful in your job and your family will live happily ever after, that might work. And if you start the conversation with, you know, Bitcoin's gonna destroy your bank, you know, you're a 20th century relic and we don't like banks or bankers and we just think you should just go ahead and quit your job. But before you quit your job, you should convince the board of directors to disband and liquidate the bank. Not likely to happen, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, no one's going to liquidate their country or liquidate their bank or liquidate their company or liquidate their family or liquidate their livelihood because of your ideology and why should they have to? So the evolutionary approach is, look, Bitcoin is technology. Uh, your Apple, this is beneficial to you, building the iPhone, right? Your United States, uh, if I'm meeting with Jerome Powell, right? 
Bitcoin is not the currency to replace the dollar. Bitcoin is an asset that people can hold in lieu of gold or S&P indexes or property and it'll make the country work better and it's good for the United States. It has the benefit of being true, right? I guess, I guess the, the, the real issue here is if there's $100 trillion worth of property in the form of gold and silver and rental income properties and S&P indexes and bonds that are overvalued, and Bitcoin can simply replace them all, and every bank is more successful, and every investor is more successful, and every country is more successful, and we all live happily ever after, is that such a bad thing, right? It's like, what's wrong with living happily ever after, right? Like, like it's, um, we have the phrase, Bitcoin fixes this. Well, I, I think Bitcoin also fixes every company and every, country, every governmental institution. So it's better if when you're, when you're thinking this through, I think it's better if you ask the question, is Bitcoin a solution to that institution? And the answer is yes, mm -hmm. right? You get the sense sometimes there are some people in the community that, that if Jerome Powell were to make a press release tomorrow saying, you know, we've seen the light and the United States is gonna buy $100 billion of Bitcoin, they would be unhappy about that. I think they'd be conflicted. It was like, they don't, like they don't want other people to, uh, to get the secret. But I mean, of course the point is, if Bitcoin is money for enemies, isn't the bigger idea Bitcoin is technology to make the world a better place? And if everybody adopted Bitcoin, then maybe we wouldn't be enemies. <laughs> Right. Like at, at the point that, that um, a company, like, let's say JP Morgan, what's wrong? Do I mind if JP Morgan starts custodying $100 billion of Bitcoin? They'll pick up the phone, call all their clients, all their clients will start buying Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin will go to the roof and it'll demonetize $100 trillion of other assets. And that means that the cost of food and housing and clothing and gold jewelry will go down. And it means that society will get more rational. And it means that the effective ability to, to pay deficits with inflation will be deteriorated. Over the long term, when you look out long term, meaning at the, when Bitcoin is $500 trillion of the economy, then the, the marginal ability of political systems to inflate the currency is gonna deteriorate. Because it's right? a check and balance. Yeah, let me, let me take a different tack at this. I do think Bitcoin is gonna collapse currencies, but it won't be the US dollar, it's gonna be the 100 weak currencies. And, and the I'd even probably take that back and say it a different way. I really feel like the next step in, in the economic evolution of the world is the United States dollar is gonna collapse all 100 weak currencies if it gets on a crypto rail. If we have stable coin US dollars, I think that every currency other than the top dozen is going to collapse and all those countries are gonna dollarize. And I think that Bitcoin is gonna collapse all the weak assets. We know, we know enemy number one, gold. Gold is just an awful monetary asset, but it's not the only one. You know, investment properties and timberland and, you know, buying up natural gas rights, all, all the things people do to avoid 
putting money in a savings account that generates 0% yield, they're all choices. They're a big leap though. I mean, the leap for a better currencies, an immediate obvious problem to people day to day. Someone in Turkey, I was reading Turkey, just the common day, the everyday problems people have now with the collapsing currency. You know, they're skipping meals now because they can't afford food. There was a guy who put on, it was a great, it was, my brother pointed out to me, somebody put on Twitter the other day, he said, just been to Turkey, it's amazing, everything's cheap. And there was a guy who replied to him, he said, not for us. So there's that immediate pain point, like I need that right now. Owning Bitcoin instead of owning property, like a rental property, isn't an immediate pain point to somebody. So that leaps harder for people to make. Yeah, so there's two transformations. There's digital transformation of currency and there's mm. digital pro- transformation of property. And the digital can- transformation of currency is something that it that will run very fast and very hard. And the Chinese clearly are concerned about it. Mm-hmm. The way a country, you know, the country is concerned about it is they're going to put in place capital controls and they're going to be and they're going to be regulating the currency. Um, it happens that Bitcoin has a role because Bitcoin and the Lightning Network is a way to move digital currency, right? Even, even when Jack Mahler's talks, right? When he's, he's talking, he's saying, well, what, we, what people want to do is send $25 from Chicago to El Salvador so we convert it to Bitcoin, we wire it, and we flip it back again on the other end. What they're trying to do is they're trying to move the medium of exchange at the speed of light, and that's fine. But, the path of least resistance is the path of most, uh, is the strategy of most likely success, right? It's like, if you wanna be successful, then you step back and say, what am I trying to do? Well, I'm trying to give 8 billion people the strongest currency I can in the, in the, with the least amount of effort. And the strongest currency is the dollar and the least amount of effort would be to put it on some kind of lightning rail or even a, a, a centralized finance system, a, put it on Facebook or put it on Apple, right? The problem is just they don't go to 8 billion people. Mm-hmm. But everybody in the world wants that. And then, and then the second uh, thing to do is give them a property asset that they can hold as a long-term store of value. And if we focus on those two things, like, what won't we focus on? I don't think we need to topple every government in the world, nor do I think we need to rewire the accounting systems. Here's the problem with the accounting system. I've already pointed out that it is physically impossible to rewire them. For, for trillions of dollars, you couldn't do it. But let's say it was possible. It's still illegal, okay? Which means you have to topple the government because the distinction between currency and property is a bright line distinction in the tax code of every nation. And the IRS determined in 2014 that Bitcoin was property and the US dollar is currency. In El Salvador, they made it possible to transfer Bitcoin without paying a tax. But in every other nation on earth, the bright line establishment is when you transfer property, you owe a tax. Mm And that means that no rational investor would ever pay for anything with a property and no company would be able to pay for anything with the property because you're accelerating a taxable event. So unless you're willing to default on your taxes to your nation state, you can't use a property as a currency. You just can't. And so 
Now you've got a simple, a simple observation. Do you simply want to give $100 trillion of dollars to everybody in the world and fix that problem? And do you want to give $100 trillion of property to everybody in the world and then improve the world? Or do you want to literally deconstruct every country and every nation straight state? And, and I think the, the answer is like, when you have the ability to make $100 trillion peacefully to the benefit of everybody, which is go left, that's the evolutionary strategy, and the enemy is gold. Or, but if we just declare war on gold, it could be a $100 trillion asset. I'm telling you, Bitcoin goes to $6 million a coin, and I don't know, the nation of gold, you know, puts out a rest warrant for us, right? What's gonna happen if we declare a war on the nation of gold and we stop paying our taxes to the nation of gold? Right? Nothing. 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 And Bitcoin goes to six million. Or we can be in a dispute with every mayor, the FBI, the CIA, you know, Interpol, the United States military, the EU, everybody that's a patriot, everyone that's a nationalist, every political party, every politician, every corporation, including Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, every piece of technology, every institutional structure. You could do that. And and is it Better? No. You're not getting any more. You're not getting any more, right? I mean, it's, it's literally like this is the path of least resistance. We have a technology. It's digital gold is worth $100 trillion. And this is the, the other approach. It's a digital currency. We want to replace nation state currencies, and we wish everybody would do that. And, and I guess it's kind of a philosophical issue, but if you think about it enough, like if you were a public company CEO, go interview 500 public company CEOs and ask them if they could physically rip out their accounting systems and if they could do business with the property. And every one of them is gonna say, I can't do business with the property. It's not practical, right? It's not legal. I'd be fired by my board for doing it. And here's the last point, it's like, like three people can buy three and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and drive up MicroStrategy stock by a factor of 10 and make $10 billion for the shareholders, three people. Or I can have everybody quit, rip the bottom out of the company, destroy the company, lose everything and not make the money. I mean, that one of them is the revolutionary approach, the other is the evolutionary approach. So I, I, I think it's kind of a moot point mm. and what's, What's going to happen is the industry is maturing and it's gonna move from the entrepreneurial phase, which was go fast, break things. We don't have a license. This is really cool technology. Look what we can do. It's gonna to move to the next phase, which is the institutional phase, which is, oh man, Silvergate Bank is issuing, you know, is issuing stable coins and I have to get an FDIC charter or I have to come public, or I have to file this. And I, th I think uh, if, if your goal is to make the world a better place, I think, I think the world will be a better, instead of comparing Bitcoin to the dollar, compare the dollar to the peso. Right, see, that, that I, think, I, I think the false equivalence that happens all the time is people go, why would you, be, you know, why do you side with, uh, you know, uh, 
the dollar over Bitcoin? And the answer is, I'm not. I'm siding with the dollar over the peso, and I'm siding with Bitcoin over gold. And the mechanism—it just happens to be a bi, uh, a bipolar or like a, a a dual model. In an inflationary environment, you might say. I, I guess this is my theory. In an, in an environment where you have nation states and fiat currencies, the money decomposes into currency and property. And you know, one is an asset, one is a appreciating asset, one is a depreciating asset, and it always happens. And the only question is, what is the property and what is the currency, right? And and a hundred years ago, maybe the currency was whatever and gold was the property. And uh, then for a while, the property was sovereign debt. And then lately, before Bitcoin, the property was S&P index funds and th or, or it was real estate. And right now, the property is Bitcoin. And as long as there are governments on this earth that have the will to create their own currency, you're gonna have this issue. Maybe you'll get um, maybe you'll get some idealistic governments. Like maybe you get the El Salvador model, but El Salvador is not even an idealist. If El Salvador is completely idealistic, they would have adopted Bitcoin and abolished the dollar, right? And you can make the other argument, which is if they had simply said Bitcoin's property and the dollar is the currency, and then they gave everybody the Shiva wallet with the Bitcoin it would have been less disruptive to all the businesses that have to take Bitcoin. They just take, they just take stable coin on the lightning rail. I, I think that um, at the point that we start to see lightning wallets, like, like the only lightning wallet you want, in my opinion, is one lightning wallet that has dollars and has Bitcoin. You wanna be able to move the dollars at the speed of light and the Bitcoin at the speed of light. Mm -hmm. At the point that you have that, I think that that's the killer application for the world then every company operates with its existing accounting systems. Then you don't have to change the tax law, right? That, and in El Salvador, they change the tax law, yep. but, but what's the likelihood that in Europe or Japan or the US, they're gonna change the tax law and let you transfer property without capital gains tax? Yeah, it's not right. at all. It's not gonna happen. But, but here's my last point. It's not even a good idea. Like, be careful what you wish for. Like, um, if you can transfer Bitcoin without a capital gains tax, you're more likely to do so, right? Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't, right? So, so, it, so it's, it's like it's, the people that moved to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Like I moved to Puerto Rico so that I could sell my, my Bitcoin without paying tax. And my answer is, why don't you just stay in the US and not sell the Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. because, it, because if you had sold Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, or Microsoft stock at any time in their history, in order, at no capital gains tax, you made a mistake. And I would say, if you really are a Bitcoin believer, then the only thing you ought to be doing is buying as much Bitcoin as possible, and you ought to find a bank that will loan you money against your Bitcoin at the best, most favorable terms. And your plan ought to be, I'm never gonna pay a capital gains tax the rest of my life. And to the extent that I can construct uh, a, an asset-rich portfolio of a lot of Bitcoin, then I can just live off of borrowing the Bitcoin and I'll never pay income tax the rest of my life. Nice. Right, and, and if you can leverage up, right? No income tax, no property gain, no, no capital gains tax. And so the, 
the real, the fallacy is thinking it's a currency in the real world. It's not a currency, it's a property. It's going up in value. You should not ever wanna depart with it. And in theory, the smartest thing you could do if the smartest thing you could do is go to a country with a collapsing currency, borrow that currency, buy Bitcoin, and then incur a bunch of expenses in that currency that is collapsing, right? I mean, that's, that's wise. And as long as the US dollar is losing 15% of its value a year, Every single person in the United States can borrow money at less than 15% interest. Mm -hmm. If you're borrowing money at two, three, four, five 5% interest, everybody has a positive 10% arbitrage just off of the currency weakening, which means that, you know, if, if you don't have debt in the weakening currency, then you're actually, your portfolio is half as big as it otherwise would be. Like, like MicroStrategy, we've got $2.2 billion of debt at 1% interest. But that only works as long as there's a dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So we're basically paying 1% on 2.2 billion and then we're lending it out to the Bitcoin network at 170% theoretical yield. So we're scraping 169% theoretical yield. If you wave your magic wand and you make the currency go away, where's my 169% yield go to? When we get to nirvana, right? And this is practical. When we get to nirvana, I'm gonna eliminate all nation states. We're, all, we're gonna create the one true great company. I'm going to convert everybody's accounting system to Bitcoin and everybody's gonna use Bitcoin and Satoshi's to buy everything. And Bitcoin's gonna go up in value 3% a year. And now, your arbitrage, and it's going to cost 3% to borrow it. <laughs> and so, for that, so it doesn't work anymore, no. right? Like you have an opportunity right now to be an early adopter and you, your theoretical payback is 150% a year now because of the existence of currencies. That works for about the next decade. Then it works slower for about another, maybe 10 to 20 years. And then, um, then digital property demonetizes all the other properties. All those other prices come in, and and you know, fifteen twenty years out, the the government's ability to like print infinite money is dramatically decreased, right? And if the government can't print infinite money in the year twenty thirty seven then there'll be a lot more debates in the Senate and Congress about tax. And at some point there'll be some tax and they'll tax people. And then while when people realize they gotta pay a tax, they'll go back and say, cut the budget. And we will introduce fiscal discipline with some political process, but that's like 15, 20 years out, right? That's, that's a while out. And I think, you know, Peter, here's, one of my primary frustrations, I look at, you know, I watch Twitter and Bitcoin Twitter. It's like, there's only one useful thing that any of us can do every day when we get up. One thing that matters above all. That one thing is convince someone to convert some other form of property into Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? 
evangelize Bitcoin, educate Bitcoin. If you get up and you talk to 100 people and one of them takes a million dollars and they sell a million of stock and they buy Bitcoin or sell a million of gold and buy Bitcoin. You've done your job. Right, and this is why I'm frustrated when people say, we believe in sound money, half of it's gold, half of it's Bitcoin. Well, no, it means you invested millions of dollars in the enemy of Bitcoin. Sell your gold, buy Bitcoin. Sell your, take your money out of your, you know, sell the bond, buy Bitcoin. Right, sell whatever your property or whatever your asset is and buy Bitcoin. That's the one thing. We don't need to make any other enemies, right? Like we don't, we're, we're not gonna fix, you know, fill in the blank. How do you feel about this government's policy and that government's policy and this city and that tax edict and this? We're not gonna fix that. The one thing that we can do. Fix the money. Fix the money, but what mm-hmm. is that just, you know, what you want to do is you want to find everybody with money and you want them to buy Bitcoin, right? You don't, you don't need to change their political convictions. You don't need to change their religion. You don't need to change the food they eat, right? You don't need to change their views on, you know, on medicine, right? Th- those are other battles. Yep. There are, and, there, and there are other people that are signed up for those battles, but that's their conviction. But I feel like mm. every one of those battles we get into is dilutive, right? The, the, I see what you're saying. It's, yeah. di- it's a dilutive distraction. <clears throat> I have hundreds of opinions, thousands of opinions, but the only opinion that I really think is worth uttering in public is Bitcoin is good. Bitcoin is good technology. I don't care who you are, where you're from, if you sell the other stuff and buy Bitcoin, you'll be better off. Your country will be better off. Your religion will be better off. Your ideology is better off. Your family is better off. Your company is better off. And I think when we get drawn into these other, these other uh, debates, well, they suck up bandwidth, right? They, they mm-hmm. suck up the strength. They're, <clears throat> they're all just kind of religious fights over stuff, but Let's take custody, right? Is, is, is multi-sig self-custody better than single-sig, better than having money in coal storage at Coinbase, better than having it on the exchange, better than having an ETF, better? You know, is it better to do this or that? It's like, they're second order issues because only a trillion dollars is in the Bitcoin system and 500 trillion is in the other system. Let's go get it. And so, Instead of us fighting amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. all we really want to do is when we're 500 times bigger, then we'll deal with that, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody should be able to have their views and, and, and they've all got, to, don't judge people, right? 83 year old dude wants to buy the Bitcoin futures ETF and he's gonna do it in five seconds with a phone call. And if it's Warren Buffett, and if Warren Buffett wants to buy $50 billion worth of the Beto ETF, on the margin, it's better than if he bought gold, it's better than if he bought land, it's better than if he bought Apple stock, right? And so we ought to just welcome everybody into the ecosystem by whichever route they take, and we should just be trying to channel everything constructively toward a laser-like focus upon Bitcoin. Like, I, I, I don't okay. agree with your country, but I wish the treasury was one Bitcoin standard. I see right? what you're saying. Just, and and here's, here's the other fundamental point. It's like, 
we can fix half the world, but not the other half. Like I've said, I think digital energy is worth half of everything. Mm -hmm. If the world's 1,000 trillion, I think that digital energy is 500 trillion. We can call that money. The money is 500 trillion, however you wanna deal with it. We have a solution to half of everything, but we don't have the solution to the other half. I, you know, I mm. don't have this, what's gonna replace Afghanistan? When the United States went into Afghanistan and toppled the Taliban, what do we replace it with? Did we have that solution or, yep. or Iraq or yep. Lebanon? Or, like, I don't have this, like, what do I think about Turkey? I don't have the solution to govern Turkey and replace the lira. I don't know how to do that. All I know is that Bitcoin makes it more better. Bitcoin, mm -hmm. better, right? And, you know, you're not gonna always agree with politicians, but you know, the more Bitcoin in the, in the system, the political system, then the better it is. It's kind of, we're back to Isaac Newton. Yeah. Rewind Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was probably one of the most monumental contributors to truth and integrity and humanity and civilization in the history of the world. You can trace so much to that one guy. He gave us math. You know, we had arithmetic, but but the mathematics necessary to build the civilization that to make that light work, mm. to make this work, to make electricity work, to fly, to make his headphones work, to make this work. This is all Isaac Newton. But he only fixed half, and the communist regimes got it, and the dictatorships got it, and people you disagree with got it. It's math for enemies. But even so. The, you know, the world is better when we spread this. And every time we spread Bitcoin to one more organization, right? We could say they get corrupted, but what's the opposite of corrupted, right? They get corrected, mm -hmm. right? They get virtualized. We're, we're spreading virtue bit by bit. And it's, it's, it's certain, if I go to Jamie Dimon and I say, Jamie, the Bitcoiners hope and vision is for JP Morgan to go to zero and we're gonna replace you with a Bitcoin mining rig and a, and a multi-sig wallet. Yep. I don't think we're going to get his cooperation. I agree. Right? And nor are we gonna get the cooperation of anybody that works at JP Morgan. And if we go to JP Morgan and say, Bitcoin is a superior property to gold or another investment choice for all of your clients and your bank can triple its market cap and all your clients can double their net worth and your career will be enhanced and the world will be a better place and you can handle it safely because it's just digital property technology. Like, I guess we should be in that business. Hmm. And they'll get in that business yep. and they won't do the multi-sig cold storage, you know, hardware device, that's fine. But the people that do do this will be owning $10 million Bitcoin and they bought it when it was hundred bucks. And when you have $10 million Bitcoin and you are as rich as Jeff Bezos, you can go ahead and create your own anti-bank or your own thing and you can change the world. But the fundamental thing is before you change the world, get the money. Yep. Right? And maybe first fix the money to your point. If we fix the money, we fix half the world you will be able to go work on the other half. The other half is highly controversial. Yep. Nobody can agree <laughs> with anybody on anything else. It's highly controversial. <laughs> it kind of makes sense now looking at thinking about your Twitter and what you talk about because 
you basically only talk about Bitcoin and you see other people comment on Bitcoin who maybe aren't within the Bitcoin community. And the Jamie Dimon. <laughs> and then what you do is you come in and you leave a comment underneath where you just explain it to them. You don't get in fights. You don't deviate from that. Yeah, my, my view on, on Twitter is you should be cheerful, you should be constructive. You can't browbeat anybody. Um, no one's gonna change their mind if you embarrass them or insult them. And there are some cases where there are people that clearly don't understand or appreciate Bitcoin the way we do. Mm-hmm. In their case, I might like I might post underneath their comment, I don't expect to change their mind what I expect is perhaps I can educate their followers. Yeah. If you have 2 million followers and you say Bitcoin is boiling the ocean, I'm not gonna change your mind, but I'm gonna say, well, you know, it really isn't boiling the ocean. And if you want more about it, you can click here. There's a lot of work on it. Now I might get their attention. So if I get the attention of someone that is either ignorant or, or opposite, you know, in their point of view, then maybe I can open up a dialogue with them and, I, and probably you're gonna change their mind in private more than in public, or maybe you'll just register with them that you exist. But really Twitter is, uh, it, it's not really a battle to change the minds of, of the blue checks that have carved out their position. Mm-hmm. It's actually a battle to capture the hearts and the minds of people that have not yet made up their mind or, or don't know. And so I, you know, when 57,000 people look, and you say something constructive and cheerful, then maybe they're drawn to, to do some research and discover. Now, so. now, if someone famous, let's say, let's say Rockstar says, Bitcoin is boiling the ocean. I'm not gonna go to their Twitter feed and say, well, you know, actually you're stupid, you know, and have fun staying poor because <laughs> all of the people that like their music are gonna say you just insulted, they don't know what Bitcoin is. All they know is that you just insulted their favorite musician, which means that they just kind of clicked negative. So there's no point in me either venting or injecting any toxicity. All I think is there are people that might read that and I have a chance to offer a constructive point of view and maybe I can be cheerful or maybe I can I can bend them or maybe I'll like I you know Joe Biden post the other day it's small business day you know so I go and I troll Joe Biden I say well you know small businesses should consider converting to a Bitcoin standard it can help them compete and it'll be good for their business and Bitcoin is hope here and click Boom. it's like if you happen to like Joe Biden and you happen to be a small business, you might discover Bitcoin is a solution for small businesses. And if you and did, you converted that person that day. I'm not gonna make an enemy of Joe Biden, right? Nope. Like, I, I don't wanna make any enemies. Like, if I make an enemy of someone with millions of followers, they're not gonna click like when I post anything. They're not gonna support anything I say. They may actually push back harder, right? And. and I'm not gonna accomplish anything. So I have, I have one simple agenda, Peter, right? I want everyone that doesn't know about Bitcoin to discover Bitcoin. And I want people that know about Bitcoin to understand it better. And I want people that invested 
none of their portfolio and invest 5%, and I want to invest at 5% to invest 50%, and I want to think that gold is good to realize that gold is not good and sell their gold and buy Bitcoin, and I want people that like gold to stop evangelizing gold to anybody because that undermines the cause of sound money. Mm-hmm. And if you're 100% invested, I want you to understand it well enough you think, well, maybe I really can take out a 3% 15-year loan and be 200% invested. Why not? Like, and, and why not? ultimately, do I have opinion about, do, do I want to opine on Facebook versus Apple versus Twitter versus crypto this versus? No. No. Like, like stay in your lane, right? There, there's, a, there's a ration. If we come back to marketing theory, right? Basic marketing theory is stay on brand. Don't tarnish the brand stay on brand, right? What's basic political theory? Stay on message. We had this exact same conversation yesterday. Interesting you should say that. Stay on brand, yeah. stay on message. Okay, you wanna utter an opinion? I, I, I'm not an expert in the, you know, the history of New Hampshire property taxes. <laughs> not, you know, like I'm not gonna meddle in that, right? Yeah. Right, I'm gonna focus on uh, uh, very tight things Right? How do the regulators view Bitcoin? How do they view crypto assets? How does Bitcoin stand versus other crypto tokens? How does it? What is definition of digital property? You know, I'm I'm going to focus on on Bitcoin and institutional adoption and individual adoption and the technology and then the education. And if anybody gives me a venue on the left or the right or in the middle or in cyberspace to communicate something positive and cheerful and constructive, then I'm going to take that opportunity. Well, that speaks to me a lot. I'm gonna to have to I'll be processing that, especially on the brand stuff. I mean, look, we've basically hardly touched any of my questions here, by the way. <laughs> we did a completely different interview. Uh, I'm just gonna to have to pester you for another one at some point. Thanks for... Uh... I'm conscious I've taken up a lot of your time here. This was brilliant. There's a lot to think about here. I don't often listen back to my interviews. I, there's a few bits I need to ponder on this one. Yeah, if you want to, um, if you want to come back and and do a round two, I'm fine with it. I, I, we only covered a small portion. A of the small we portion. Covered. Yeah, it was brilliant though, and uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate your hospitality here to do it. And I mean, I'll, of course, I'll come back. I'd come back all the time and do this because there's a lot more questions I want to ask. But uh, thank you for everything again, and uh, keep doing your thing. And uh, there's a couple of things that spoke to me, and I think Danny's going to have a chat with me in the. Text in the way back and say, I told you. Yeah, you know, it's really extraordinary time mm-hmm. in the history of the, uh, of the business. If you if you really start to embrace the idea that this is digital energy, this is this is the greatest digital transformation of all the digital transformations of the last hundred years, and you're doing a great job, you know, incredibly hardworking, making the rounds to create all the content and and put on the record all of the people and all the expertise you have, and I appreciate it. It's just, it really is just testament to how much reporting there is to be done here. Yeah. And uh, everybody will benefit from it. I think you got good focus, so keep up the good work. Thanks, and man. All right, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for making me part of the journey. Yeah, thanks. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. 
Okay, see you all very, very soon.